Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of OTR Playlist. It has been well over a month since my last episode. And on that episode, The Life of Riley, I had mentioned that I was going to try to at least put one out every other week. And uh, I failed greatly at that. It's Now it is December 8th. So, uh, But here we go. I wanted to get some out before Christmas. I had a couple ideas. I wanted to get at least one out. Uh, and I do have I, I do have plans for another episode that I want to get out before Christmas. So hopefully I can get that one done as well. But uh, this episode, if you're a fan of the 1983 film A Christmas Story, uh, I think you're going to like it. And if you have not seen A Christmas Story, which I think everybody's probably seen it or at least heard of it, uh, I think you'll still enjoy it. Because this week's episode is on Gene Shepard. So Gene Shepard was... The narrator of a Christmas story, but not only was the narrator, but he also he was the basis for the movie. His stories, uh, I should say, um, in 1966 he released a book, "In God We Trust." All others pay cash, and in '71 he had uh, put out a book called "Wanahickey's Night of Golden Memories and Other Disasters." And the stories in those books were were the basis behind a Christmas story, or some of the stories, I'd say. Um, so, on this episode, I'm going to have four stories from his WOR radio show uh, that was out of New York. And on these shows, he tells a story, and you're going to hear the same named characters. You know, you're going to hear about Flick, you're going to hear about Schwartz, you know, uh, Farkas, his little toady, uh, Grover Dill, which I believe it's, I don't think it's Grover Dill in his stories. But the last name is Dylan. You'll know the character. Um, you even hear Miss Shields mentioned. You know, she was very uh, particular about the margins and their stories. So, um, but Gene Shepard was just such a great storyteller. Um, it's it's not known if how much was uh, fictional in his stories and how much was true in his stories. So, um, but regardless, I, I think you're going to really enjoy these. I know I did. Uh, the first. Um, story is called Paper Boys or Paper War Stories and he talks about delivering papers and, and collecting and, and getting dodged by certain people uh, to, to get his weekly money for the paper so it was kind of funny um, I was I helped my brother deliver papers back in the early 80s when he had a, he had a really big paper route so you can kind of remember the stories like this uh, also we'll have Fixing the Old Man's Car so you'll know uh, from the movie, he always referred to his father as the old man. And uh, this is not the the scene when they break down and, and uh, have to change a tire. But nonetheless, it's a great story. Um, so I think you really enjoy it. I was, I was laughing a lot when I heard this one. Uh, Kid Pranks is another uh, one that's going to be on here. Uh, just just talking, showing when you're a kid and you're doing all the silly things and how uh, gullible other kids were to believe your stories and stuff. So I think you like that. And to uh, end it all, we're going to have Red Rider Nails, a Cleveland Street Kid. And that is a, a condensed version of a Christmas story with a BB gun. So uh, sit back, listen to Gene Shepard tell his stories, and uh, enjoy. Uh, there it is. My house at good old Cleveland Street. How could I ever forget it? But there I am. With that dumb round face and that stupid stocking cap. Oh, but no matter. Christmas was on its way. Lovely, glorious, beautiful Christmas around which the entire kid year revolved. 
One of the great satisfactions you, you develop this thing, you see, is when you have difficult shots when you're throwing papers, real difficult shots, and you try different ways to, sh to, to throw it. Like, like there was one specific doorway that I always remember, and, and that I used to look forward to this point on my, on my route. It was a long stairway that went up in this two-story building. See, it was a stairway that just went right up, but the door was open on the bottom all the time. Now, there was, there was an apartment on the ground floor and one on the top floor, and there was a long, straight stairway that was lit with light bulbs that went right up inside this building. And you could see the landing up there. Well, now, the person who lived in the top apartment, they had this scrub pail that they always had on this landing. would sit right in the corner. Well, the first couple of weeks, I'd just throw a paper up there, and it would land up on the landing, see? And one day, by just by accident, I threw the paper up, and instead of it landing on the landing, it hit the wall behind the landing, and it was like a bounding board, just like a backboard, see, on a, on a basketball court. It went ka-dunk. It bounced off the other wall and zap right into the pail. Shepard canned another two points, see? <laughs> so I'm driving. I said, gee, Shepard hits, hit, you know, fan, the, the difficult push shot from the, you know, from the free shot line. Shepard really. So the next day, I tried to do it, and I just missed. And every day, that was my big moment. And I got so that was really wild at it, really great. I'd come in, you know, underhand shot. I'm riding, remember, I'm riding on a bike. I'm not, this is not from a stationary shot. I'm riding on a bike. I'd go swooping past this door and zap right up this thing. And I'd see it, thunk, thunk. and by the time I was, uh, oddly enough, I never really saw it go into the pail. See, because I was already past the door, and I'd hear it go, boom, boom, ka-bang. Oh, I said to Saturday, it was going to be a good day, see? So these little things are, are very important to a newsboy. And then, of course, another thing, too, is uh, this is a little, another little satisfaction, is to learning, learning, really learn how to fold papers. Now, you can always tell a really amateur paper deliverer who has a rubber band on him. Forget it. That guy is a, that's greasy kid stuff. <laughs> I'm serious. Anybody that puts a rubber... You've seen him with a rubber band on it? This is a guy that uh, not only is an amateur, he's worse than an amateur. He's a fake. You know, I don't mind a badly folded paper. That's an amateur. But a real fake is a guy that puts a rubber band on it. He used to sit there, you know, make the... And, and of course, you can tell how good a newsboy is is how small he can fold the paper. Now, that means that, the, that the, you know, the smaller the paper is folded, the more you can get in the sack and the less bulk the sack takes up and the better it throws. And so, so you know, after about the, oh, six or seven months, you know, I used to re-envy these other guys. For example, Flick was, a, you know, he was, had his paper out and uh, the two of us had him and Flick had started before I did. And Flick was fantastic. He could he could fold 50 papers in about five minutes flat. Zap, zap, hard as a rock. He would take he would take a a, a 10 pound Chicago trip. It was about the same size as the as the Times here, big paper, you know. He would take a a, a Chicago Tribune, like the end of the week trip, which was a Friday trip, you know, to come out just with all the ads for the weekend stuff. He'd take this Friday trip. He would fold it up roughly the size of an Eversharp pencil. Unbelievable. Fantastic. And, you know, it was just like magic. 
So I, I was always envying Flick. You know, and I, I'd have a big sack. And my, I'd have no more papers than he would, and my sack would be so big, you know, I was like Santa Claus in the beginning of his rod. You know, fantastic. I looked like a, a guy carrying a gigantic uh, captive balloon with him, you know. Whereas Flick would have this little sack <laughs> hanging on him. Boy, well, I, I began to work on my paper folding technique, and today you are listening, friends, right now to a legend. I mean, when you work at it, you know, some, of course, talent is involved. And uh, I, I began to work, and I realized by the time I was folding papers after maybe a month and a half that I was one of the great paper folders of our time. In fact, even Flick came to me one day, and he says, by God, you do it. And, you know, that's like, you know, like being told by Roger Maris, you got a good swing, kid. It's a great moment. And so this was a little satisfaction. But then the greatest satisfaction of all, and this is possibly why I turned out to be such a sneaky person, is out euchring the great unwashed slob public. They are the ultimate enemy friend. This is where it is. I mean, you can, you can, you can beat the paper. I mean, this, this poor little paper is just a piece of paper. You know, you can ultimately learn to control that. You can ultimately learn to be a pretty good shot, you know, riding on a bike and uh, throwing a sidearm shot up into the upper deck of a... I used to pretend, by the way, I was involved in various sports. How many of you have sport fantasies when you're doing things? Like, like you know, you come into the office seat and you take this piece of paper, you fold it up, you say, over the corner. Shepard cans another one. There it comes up. Will Chamberlain's bringing it out. Shepard is bringing it in out of the center line. <laughs> These are all little fantasies. And I used to... It would vary by the season. So if it was the springtime, Shepard was always making these spectacular throws from third. I was always seeing myself, you know, as picking up this bunt, the very hard shot, and picking off a runner. What a, what a play. Now, if it was in the fall, Shepard was always making these beautiful backhand passes. You know, he was always throwing a basketball. I always saw myself, you know, as coming in. Shepard throws it up. What a passing. What a magnificent passer. There is a real playmaker, Shepard, you know. That's all myself. Well, now these these various fantasies are part of the of the day by day life. That I wonder if anybody's ever written a major philosophical treatise on the daydreams of ordinary work. No, I'm I'm asking a question. Any of you out there involved in experimental psychology has anyone ever written? Now this is not Walter Mitty. No, no, don't don't uh, come in and uh, give me a. Uh, uh, believe me, uh, Woody Allen me no Woody Allens. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the little vague satisfactions and daydreams that carry us through our daily work, our daily life. I wonder if anyone's ever written about this. Well, I'll tell you this. One of the great satisfactions I discovered as a, as a newsboy was the human combat at the wind. Now, when you're, when you're 11 years old and you're delivering papers, you are almost at the mercy of everybody because, you know, they don't take you seriously. And it took me about six months to realize I was being had. I would, there was a certain kind of customer, and this, this is, you find this guy a lot in life, who uh, you come, you know, you, here it is Saturday morning. It's collection day, right? Okay. Now, there's the, there's the one that he pointed out, the guy that hides behind a curtain, see, and never, he, he, he's not going to pay at all, see. That's his gambit. He's a deadbeat. Now, I'm not discussing deadbeats. I'm talking about Sharpies. Sharpies is another thing. So, uh, 
In other words, chutzpah is not exactly the same as uh, being a deadbeat. So I would come up to this door, like any other door, you know. I'd knock on the door, and the guy would come. This guy, blurry eyed like, what do you want, kid? Say, uh, uh, it's time to, I'd like to collect the paper, please. And I have my little book out, you know, you owe 86 cents. And uh, he'd say, all right, just a minute, will you, kid? Okay, uh, he'd come back and say, hey, listen, uh, all I got is a $10 bill. Uh, you got change for a 10? Uh, you know, when you're, when you're making 86-cent collections, you're not going to have a change for a 10, right? Okay. Well, he knew that. That's why he did it. Then you'd go peddling on. So you couldn't collect, so there you are. And I said, well, I'm sorry, kid. All I got is 10, you know. So what are you going to do? So I would go on. Well, this this would go on. Sometimes it would go on for a month. And the guy, what he was doing, he really just seriously wasn't paying, you know. He, he would always say, you got change for a 20, kid? And then one day it hit me. This is an act with this guy. It just hit me. I was sitting there one day folding my papers, and I'm getting bugged. I'm thinking about this because there were about five guys on the route that were doing this. So I turned to George the Greek, and I said, hey, George. He said, yeah. I said, hey, George, can I borrow from you $10 and change? He said, what do you want it for? I said, I want $10. I'll give it back to you. I said, I never had 10 bucks. But George said, what do you want it for? I said, well, I just want to collect from some guys. You give me, give me 10 ones. And George says, okay. And don't forget now, he says, you owe me 10 bucks. George the Greek, by the way, was the guy that ran the newspaper agency. So I, 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 now I've got 10 $1 bills. I got them stuck in my left pocket. My working change is in my right pocket. So I go out. It's Saturday. See, so I go out. I'm going on the route. See, and I'm, I can hardly wait. I'm setting this guy up. See? <laughs> and he was a big slob. You know, worked out the roundhouse. You know, the kind that always comes there with his underwear shirt and the hair on his chest sticking out. You know, you could smell last Saturday's beer on him. And he's got a, you know, three-day growth of beard. And, you know, the sleazy. You just feel the sleazy. Can you imagine the animalistic life? The, the, greatest, <laughs> the greatest description I ever heard of that type of guy was done by S.J. Perlman. I got to give credit to to, uh, to Perlman for this. He's talking about a guy that jumped in his swimming pool, this real slob, and he says he lay there snorting through his blowholes. <laughs> These people don't breathe. They got flippers and fins. See? So this guy, he's waiting for me. So I'm knocking the door. I finally wait. You know, I finally all the way through the route. I'm looking forward. I can hardly wait for this moment. You know, for for him to. To, to come to this guy's house. So I'm peddling along and I'm collecting and some people pay, some don't, you know. And so finally I get to this guy's house and I'm ready, see. I walk up to the door, knock on the door, and I got my book out, see. And I'm playing it like I always did, see. And the door opens and there's big, fat, slob Charlie. See, what do you want, kid? As if he didn't, he knew what I wanted. What do you want, kid? I said, I'm here, sir, to collect for the paper. Oh, gee whiz, you know, you woke me up. All right, all right. Hold on a minute, kid. This was his bit, see. He always would pretend like he's going back to, you know, get the dough. So he comes back out. He says, oh, I'm sorry, kid. He says, you got change for a 10? I said, why, yes, I certainly do. He said, what? I says, I certainly do. I have change for a 10. You hear what I said, kid? I asked you, you got change for a 10. 
<laughs> well, yes, sir. I had change for ten. Right here. How do you want it? Do you want it in ones? <laughs> yeah, my God. I take the ten ones out, see, and his face fell. Like a like a giant lantern that's been blown out. You know, just it was, it was it was like a you know just all of a sudden he became a small child just like that. You know his face fell. It was kind of white. Are you sure you got changed for a ten? Let me see that. And I said yes, sir. Here, uh, let's see one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I have ten one dollar bills. And then I realized he didn't have ten. He was faking. Sort of stood there for six. Well, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, listen, uh, can you come back next week? I said, yes, sir. I certainly can. Okay. And down the steps I go. Now, I didn't care, you know. I didn't get the dough. But I want. I really want. That's so I'm pedaling out, you know, nine feet tall. I'm throwing up papers and making a collection. Two and a half hours later, I arrive back at George the Greeks. I'm going to walk into George, you know. Flick is sitting on the floor and he's working on his book. And Schwartz is over there and he's working on his book. And Martin is over there and he's working on his book. Shepard walks in. And I come striding in there, ten feet tall. George is hanging back around there by the candy counter. He says, hey, Shepard. I said, yeah, what's up, George? Don't give me that what's up stuff. All right, what did you do to the guy on 1014 Arizona Avenue? I said, what do you mean? He said, all right, don't give me what do you mean. What did you do? Just tell me what you did to him. That's nothing, George. So what do you mean, nothing? That guy crawled up here, he dropped all the papers, and the guy says he's never going to buy another paper from me again. That guy's been on our route for 20 years. What did you do? That was big, fat, rotten, stinking Charlie. Now, I ask you, friends, who won that battle? Ultimately? Well, let's put it this way. There are some people who win an occasional skirmish. There are even some people who win an occasional battle. But then there are those wondrous favorite few. Those beautiful, wondrous favorite few. Now, over here, those wonderful few who win the wars. Friends, you are listening to a guy who has won quite a few skirmishes. I've even taken a battle or two. And so tonight's salute to misspent you. 
Some night I'll tell you tales of the poor road. Stop down. Some of these things. Happy. 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 Now, did you enjoy that story of the news world? Now, that's a true story. Now, any 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 guy who's ever worked the newspaper out knows exactly what I'm talking about. And, uh, of course, uh, uh, <laughs> there were other things. But I, I then I remember, you know, some of the great things on the newspaper. I remember there was a lady, uh, a big, fat lady, I'll never forget her, who, who came from Kentucky someplace. Big, fat lady who must have been close to 80. And uh, this lady... Every Saturday I came there. Now, obviously, she had no money at all, this lady. Hardly any. It was a little tiny joint, you know. And, and I've always liked people. I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe, again, it's my newspaper boy training. But I've always somehow had a great respect for people who buy a newspaper every day. I mean it. I mean, really, these, these, are, these are people that are with it. Now, I don't care what paper they buy. The idea that they feel the need to read a newspaper every day has somehow seemed to me to be a great thing. <laughs> now, I'm serious. And I've known people who are absolutely, you know, dead broke and who have nothing, really, to, to work on who will always get a paper, um, what, whatever paper it is they can get, will always get a paper every day, even when they have no money to spend on anything else. Now, these, these somehow are really admirable people. Now, I, I'm talking about a very personal judgment and a very personal observation, but maybe it comes from this one lady. I remember this lady. There was a big, fat woman who, as I said, she must have been 80 or close to it, who lived in this little house. Obviously, no friend. Never, you never saw anybody else there. She was all alone. And every, every Saturday, this lady would have her 86 cents, or whatever it was, for the papers, to the penny. See, she would, she would have this money, and she would come out and give it to me, and then she would do something else. Every Saturday, she would give me two cookies that she made for me. She would make these cookies Friday night that she would have, probably give some to friends or somebody she had, you know, kids she knew, but she would make these cookies so that I would have two cookies every Saturday. Now I, you know, I I dug this, you know, and and, uh, and and by the way, another curious thing, I find that quite often the poorer the person is, the less likely he is to try to chisel. But poor people almost invariably pay their bills. What you think that one out? Now I'm not talking about people who are broke. That's somebody else. I'm talking about poor people. I'm talking about people who really have very little earning power, whose, uh, whose earnings are low, uh, people who work in some kind of a small, menial job or don't even have a job at all, who uh, may have a little check from some disability or something, these people almost always are the absolute best credit risks. And yet, they're the people least likely to get credit, ironically. And I tell you, this is, you know, working the news route that there were certain people who I knew would pay no matter what. 
And they were almost always the people who had nothing. And I used to feel kind of funny about it, you know, because I would go past this one. I remember the Strickland. I'll tell you, that on, on my paper, because my paper, I cut through a great wide swath of earning. In other words, part of my route was on, you know, the, 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 the big end of town where the, the superintendents of the mill and the old big shots all lived. All the way on down to the places where, you know, had the old widow ladies and so on, way down at the other end of town. And I, I remember many times, I remember so many times, the Stricklands, for example, it was one of the worst to get them to pay for the 86 cents worth of the paper. I mean, I used to practically have to crawl in there on my hands and knees. I remember the maid paying me sometimes because they wouldn't pay. The maid would be embarrassed. You know, it was one of these places with trellises all over, roses, nine-car garage, a long sweeping driveway with, the, you know, the whole business. And then I would get down to this old Kentucky lady, you know, 80, 80 years old, and she would pop out and she would give me her 86 cents, counted to the penny, you know, and the two cookies. So I don't know. Now you understand why I'm such a rotten person. Why I have never totally bought the beautiful people. <laughs> No, not that way, not that way. Go on, come on, Rat Trap. Pull it like this, eh? Oh, like this. Here, I want to put the nuts in it. Okay, there we are. Nice for it. And we got it! Ah, like this. There it is. Oh, God, I get that dirty mug. Bling, bling, bang, bang. There we go. For one brief moment, I saw all the bolts silhouetted against the lights of the traffic, and then they were gone. Oh, Tonight's story is pretty sickening, <laughs> and it uh, it has to do with cars. I will tell you a story about cars. Now, for all of you car cuckoos, you know you know what I'm about to tell. You don't know the story, but you know the feeling. My, I I got really involved. See, I was about 16 years old, and I just got my driver's license. And uh, for any male type out there listening, and he knows, you know, you get the car cuckoo thing going with you. Man, you think, eat, dream, sleep. You, well, you can't get cars out of your head. And you, I, I'd sit in school and I'd draw cars. And uh, I, w I would sit and watch them go by and think about them. And I'd think about the parts in them. I used to think even such things as, yeah, I, you know that at one point I even thought of the number of electric motors, Nick, that are in a car. Have you ever thought of the number of electric motors that are in a car? Think about it. Yeah, there's a lot of electric motors. See, and I used to sit there and thinking, gee, you know, and I, I, I'd see cars in my sleep. I'd dream of cars. And, of course, the next step was to get involved in working on them. I love to work on cars. Anytime anybody would say, Shep, here, hold the wrench. Man, I was right there. You know, I'd watch these guys. I'd go to the garage, and I'd, I'd go to Passwinski's garage. It was a shell station. It had this garage in the back. And Frank Paswinski was always grinding the valves on somebody's Chevy. And I'd stand around, you know, that watch them. They get the head off, and these guys are working away there. And I picked up all the nomenclature, and I actually began to work on things. You know, once in a while I get on. I work on a Saturday afternoon. He paid me a dollar forty an hour working down at the garage grinding valves. I loved it. And I'd, every every busted fingernail I had was precious. All right, you got the scene. Well. We had a car in our family. 
the old man's car. Let's put it this way. It wasn't the family's car. It was the old man's car. And see, if I loved cars, the old man loved cars 50 times more. And he used to keep that, that, we had this Oldsmobile, see, he'd keep that thing so shiny, man, I'll tell you. You could, you could feel the glow from this car just coming through the garage at midnight. You'd just see it gleaming in there. And, of course, it was about 19 hands old, you know. There's, there were at least 19 guys that owned it before we got it, but the old man loved it. And he'd get spot remover, you know, and he'd take spots off the seat and his windows. He'd get out with a rag and he'd clean the windows off every afternoon. Of course, uh, you know, it was his life, his car. He loved his car. Well, one Saturday afternoon, there could just as well be tomorrow, you know, like any Saturday. I am out noon. School it's nice since fall, and I'm digging the scene, and I'm 16. I've got a brand fresh new driver's license. Now, the old man had one rule in the house over the weekend, and that was don't wake him up before noon. Now, one day of the week, he could sleep, and man, if you if you made any noise in the house, he'd kill you. <laughs> he'd love to sleep. And so the old man is sleeping in a sack there, and it's about 11 o'clock, noon, something like that. I'm getting the itch. I see the car sitting out there in the driveway with the sun gleaming down on it. <laughs> and there on the dining room table are the keys. Okay? Now, this car is the car that formed the vortex. In fact, it formed... The core, the apple core of the old man's life. And I went into the car and sat down in the front seat. And I playing with the steering wheel a little bit. Working the gear shift level. And by the way, he, he was the kind of guy that was always buying accessories for the car. Like, for example, he had a skull and crossbones that was attached to the steering wheel that was his spinner knob, you know. <laughs> That was the, you know, the artistic taste of the old man. And if you're curious, he had a big black dice, you know, seven on the side, and that was his gear shift knob, you know, the big dice on the top, say. And, and more than that, he had a rubber monkey that hung in the back window, would go up and down when the car would go. See, he loved this kind of stuff, see. And, uh, but it was his car. He just, everything about the car, he used to sit there, you know, and uh, I'm sitting in the front seat now, working the keys, yeah, put the key in the car, see. Let's not take a, you know, just uh, turn it over and warm it up for the old man. <laughs> and everything, I love to look at the meters. You see, it's, it's charging. I look at the ammeter and it flicks over towards the sea. And I see it's got uh, three quarters of a tank of gas, which is at least two quarters more than the old man usually had. You know, he's got a big weekend, see. It's running three quarters of the tank. I put my foot on the gas. You feel that little vibration. Well, what is the next step? I ease in the clutch. I think I'll back it up just a little bit. You know, it's uh, to get it out of the sun, get it in the shade at the house. See, so I'm. I put it in reverse, and I roll it back about maybe five feet. Great, great. Feels good. See, I have to ease the clutch out. I put the brake on, put it back in the neutral. Little did I realize that I was approaching a disaster that would forever be part of the folklore of the Shepherd clan. And when it was mentioned, there would be dead silences.
So I put it in first, and I drive it forward. <laughs> now I'm going back and forth. I put a little bit and back and forth. Then I decide, well, you know, I think what I'll do, I'll help the old man, and uh, the back end is facing the street. I'll turn the car around, see? So that when he comes out, he just gets in the car, and it's facing down the driveway, and then he won't have to back out and turn around all that. I'll do that for him. <laughs> so I, I back it up. She eases around, and I slip it into first, and I spin the wheel with the skull and crossbone spinner all the way. You know, I love to grab that spinner, see? And by the way, the eyes of the skull and crossbones were two fake emeralds. You know, those ones that glow. So, <laughs> oh, I'll never forget the time the old man let, let that spinner go once, and it got him in the gut. You know, the car straightened out, and the spinner got him in the gut. And I think that, you know, never did help him after that. But I backed up a couple times. I finally got the car turned around. I backed it in the, in the, into the almost all the way into the into the yard, got it turned around, and now it's facing the street. Just sitting there, this big, glowing, beautiful machine monster. Which reminds me, this is W.O.R. New York. I'm sitting in the front seat of the old man's car, and I can smell the gasoline. It's exciting to a male. I don't know whether girls ever feel that kind of feeling about cars, but men do, right, George? And no, no two ways about it. Well, after a bit, you know, the car's warmed up now, and it's you can see that the, the uh, temperature gauge is up to normal. Gee, she was running great. So I get out of the car, turn it off, and I go into the house. But I couldn't get that damn car out of my mind. It's just sitting out there, see. And the sun is shining. It's a beautiful day, and the uh, the yeast was rising deep inside my my veins. I could feel the you know, I could feel the life, the sap flowing through. Well, along comes, around the back of the house, comes Bruner, my buddy. And Bruner comes wandering along, and he hollers. You remember when guys used to come to your house and holler for you? You know, hey, George! You know, <laughs> out and back. You know, I guess, I don't know whether kids still do holler for each other like that, but you know, you holler out in the back, hey, George, hey, Shepard, you know, they yell out in the back. They didn't come up and knock on the door, I think, they'd holler in the back, see, and I hear, hey, Shepard, and it's Bruner, so I, I hollered, I, you don't go out to talk to me, either. you holler from inside the house, you know, what do you want? Just come on out. What for? We're going out to play ball. Uh, well, okay, after I finish my sandwich. I'm eating a sandwich, see, I made a salami sandwich in there, see, so I'm eating a sandwich. and So he just waits out there, you know, kids don't invite you, he's waiting out there, so, so I'm eating a sandwich and, and knocking down the, the Campbell's soup, but, you know, it's lunch, see. And the old man is still asleep, he's still in the next room, sound asleep. So I walk out on the back porch finally, Bruner's sitting on the back steps, and he's got his ball glove, has to go on the steps. It suddenly hit me, and I didn't feel like playing ball today. So, you know, because that car, Bruner was outlined against the car. That car was drawing me on like some kind of a fantastic mechanical magnet. I couldn't get away from it. So Bruner picks up his gloves and says, well, come on, let's go. I said, wait a minute, Bruner, I think I, I think I left a rag on the front seat of the car. He said, oh, you've been driving a car? Yeah, you know, you know, you driving a car. I drove it back and forth three feet, you know. You know, I tell Bruno, yeah, I see, because Bruno was one year younger than I was and couldn't, didn't have a license. So I was running up top. Yeah, driving the car, the old man, you know. I've been driving it all weekend. <laughs> you know, I just come back. And he says, oh, 
I said, well, I'm going to go get the rag. So I get in the car, and I sit in the front seat, and I look down underneath there. I said, I'm not looking for any rag. I just love to sit in the seat. And finally, it hit me. I didn't want to go. I just said, I didn't want to play ball. So I get out of the car, and I says, look, Bruner, go ahead. I don't want to play ball. i got to work on a car. I said, well, what are you doing? I said, i got, to, I got some work to do on a car. That Bruner goes down the driveway, and there I am alone. Say, sun beaming down. I decided to work on the car. Now, what do you do when you work on the car? Well, the first thing you do is decide what's wrong with the car, right? Well, there was nothing wrong with the car. But I wanted to work on a car. Now, this car was so shiny... The old man had it simonized. I mean, he must have nine coats of simonized on this thing. The chrome polish was so spotless that you could see reflections within reflections within reflections. And I didn't feel like polishing it. I felt like working on it. Just different. So I get into the garage, and he has this big toolbox, which was made out of wood, you know, the kind with the big handle on the top. And it's open. It looks like a hard carrier's thing. And he had all kinds of tools. The old man's tools and rags and waste. And he had screwdrivers and shims and the whole jazz in this toolbox. So I take the toolbox and I think, well, what I'm going to do is I'm going to tighten the nuts on the car. Yeah, you know, the head bolts. This is the thing you can do, see? So I've done this down at the garage. And so I open the hood of the car and there is that magnificent big six-cylinder Oldsmobile engine with all the ignition wires and the, the generator down. It was still heating up. You know, you could feel the, the heat rising out. It's an exciting feeling. And this is a, a living creature. This isn't just a car. It's a li- it's our car. It's a living creature, see? And so I, I start doing these little things like I open the I open the radiator, look in. There it is. This is rusty water right to the top. I put the radiator cap back on. And, and so I take out my old man set of socket wrenches. He had this kind, you know, with all the wrenches that fit in this little metal clip with the handle. So I take out the socket wrench, and I, I test the wrenches, and I finally decide here's the wrench that fits on the generator nuts. The generator was attached to the side of the block with this big rod, you know, five or six big bolts on it. So I start tightening them. And I'm tightening them away. And I feel, I'm really working on a car now. The heat's drifting out. Mr. Bruner comes out of the house next door and walks past. Oh, working on the car, huh? He's on his way to the Bluebird. He won't be able to talk that good, you know, a couple hours from now, but he's gone. This is his weekend, see. He's gone to work. His work consisted of trying to drink up everything they were cooking, you know, at Seagram. So he leaves, and I'm tightening the bolts. Well, now, there is very few parts on a car that are more exciting to a real car cuckoo than what part? What is the part that gets more excitement among males and among guys that are interested in cars? Carburetors, right? (laughs) The carburetor in a car... The carburetor to a car is like the heart to the human... the, the, the human anatomy. And it's roughly that sneaky to work on. It's got valves in it. It's got everything almost like the heart. and almost does the same thing, see? And so sitting on top of this block was this beautiful carburetor, and the old man was always talking about adjusting it. Well, I knew a little bit about adjusting it, so I decided I was going to take the carburetor off. You got it? And I was going to clean it for the old man. 
What a fantastic mistake. So I... It's it's sitting on the top of the motor block. The, sitting right on the top in the middle there, you see. And it's a standard Oldsmobile-type carburetor with a air filter on the top. So I take the air filter off, which was held with this clamp, and I lift the air filter, big air filter, and I set it down on the ground very carefully. Now I'm really working on the car, see. And I look in, I can see this little... A little uh, oil and crud and gunk on the edges of the carburetor. Now, the carburetor was set down on the block, and it sat on a flange with four bolts that went right through. You got it? So, no no, no, no problem taking it off. So I take this, you got it? I take this socket wrench, and I fit it down. Oh, boy, this son of a gun's not really on. See? The first one starts to move. Ah, I got it loose. I set the socket down in the one to the right. Oh, man, this is really tight, see? So I take the old man's mallet, and I hit the I hit the handle, see? Oop, there it goes. Well, 15 minutes later, I have removed the four key bolts which hold the carburetor down to the block of the Oldsmobile. All the while. The old man's his bedroom, in his bedroom, snoozing away. He, you know, he's got the world by the you know what. You know, he's sleeping. It's Saturday. It's groovy, you know. And he's he, he re- does not realize that his world is crumbling around him. <laughs> so I take the carburetor off. See, I lift it off. <sighs> okay. Then I see it's got a gasket. You know, the gasket that sits down over the four bolts. So I, I said, well, I better take the gasket off because I'm going to clean the gasket now. You see, when man perpetrates a total fiasco, he does it logarithmically. In other words, if you're going to louse up, you will really louse up, friends. You don't louse up a little bit, you go all the way if you're, the, you know, if you're prone to do it. So I peel this cork gasket off. It was made out of cork. I peel it off, and I get the gasket very carefully, and I put it, next to the carburetor, which is now on a piece of paper on the driveway next to the car. Now I'm really going to go to work, see. So I take I take a rag, and I take a, a, a can of gasoline out of the garage, and I start taking the carburetor apart very carefully. See, there's bolts holding it together. I lift it out, and I can see the needle valve in there and all that stuff, see. And I douse it with gasoline, and I'm running it through, see, and sloshing it around. And crud is coming out. I'm feeling really groovy, Shepard. You know, I'm really doing it. I'm really going to... Is the old man going to be surprised? I can think, oh, is he going to be surprised when he finds that he's getting like 25 miles a gallon of gas and the car's got 50% more pickup and it goes like mad, you know? And I will tell him all about it. And then one day when he says, gee, the car's working good, I'll say, hey, Dad, uh, have you noticed how great it's working? Well, uh, <laughs> well, guess what happened? Well, I... I da, da, da. This is dreams of glory, see? So I'm dipping the carburetor in the gasoline and I see the crud falling off of it, and I, very carefully, I have got myself some tissues, and I'm cleaning it out with the Kleenex, see, carefully cleaning all the crud is coming off, it is now about two o'clock, it's getting hot out, see, real hot, now I can hear the old man in the house banging around, he is up now, see, and he is having breakfast, I can see him, you know, in my mind, he's sitting at the kitchen table there with his BVDs on, you know, reading the paper, and drinking his morning coffee, Smoking his 18 cigarettes, you know, and, and he's got a, you know, he's got a growth of beer, and it's you know, Saturday, and he's uh, he's ready for a big night. <laughs> he's just slowly coming to life, and I'm gonna get it back on. See, and I'm gonna surprise him. 
So I take the carburetor and I douse it up and down about three or four times. I hold it in my left hand. Now I'm about to put it right back on that block. I look around. Where's the gasket? Oh, there it is. It's been blown over. I see the wind blew it over on the dirt. See, so I pick it up and I, I got it now in my right hand and I see there's all kinds of dirt and crud hanging out of the gasket. So I carefully put the carburetor back down on the hood of the car and take the gasket and dip it into gasoline. I'm dipping it up like that. The crud comes off. You notice trouble is slowly beginning to enter it, right? So I carefully lay the gasket under the four upright bolts that are, the, the bolts that are sitting there. I lay it down. It fits perfectly. Now I'm all set. I carefully put the very carefully put the carburetor back on. Adjust carefully. Now, let's see. All right. I reached down, and I had put the four bolts on the newspaper. I reached down, I take one of them, I put it on with the fingers first, breaking a fingernail. Sun is hot. I take the gasket, I push it down harder. Now I have the socket wrench. I lay it on the top and... Oh, man, this thing is going on hard, see? It's, you know, barely going on. Come off a lot easier than it's going on. So I take another breath and go... Well, maybe if I get the other three on, this one will set better. So I take another one of the bolts and I put it on. That's the one on the right. And I start screwing up with my fingers. It goes on pretty good. I lay the, so the wrench on it, the socket wrench. I put the handle in. And this one's going pretty good. See? Well, that went out pretty good. At least it looks tight anyway. So I put the one on the other side. There's only four, see. Put it on, start screwing it. And now I got three of them on. I reach down for the fourth. Where is it? Where is it? Where is it, under the paper? Couldn't have blown it away. It's a bolt, see? So I get down, there's a nut, you know, a big one. So I get down on my hands and knees, and I look under the paper. I take the paper up, and I shake it, nothing. Well, maybe it rolled under the toolbox, so I carefully picked the toolbox up, which you say, nothing. This is the essence of true lost things. There's a total mystery about them. You can't explain how you lose them. There's no, there's no reason for it. And it, it, all of a sudden, I felt the fear. Oh, my God, I lost one of the nuts. What am I going to do? So now I'm going up and down the driveway on my hands and knees, seeing I'm, I'm looking in the weeds, and I'm up and down the you know, back of the car and all around. It's sitting right in the driveway. That Where could it go? You know, where could it go? I'm climbing around the back and up and down. And I hear inside the house, I hear the old man singing. <laughs> He's feeling great, see, because this afternoon, you know, he's got the world on the, you know, the, he's getting ready to go out. And I can't find a nut. I'm getting scared. Really scared. Well, 
To make a long story even more sickening, you know what man generally does when he is totally loused up? He fakes it. I could not find that nut. And I thought to myself for one wild moment, where could it have gone? Did Mr. Bruner take it? You know, he walked first. You know, it didn't seem, it just seemed insane that Mr. Bruder would take one nut from the carburetor, you know, was staggering on his way down to the Bluebird. So I figured, well, I don't know where it is. It's gone. It's gone. I lost it. It's gone. I can't find the nut. Well, I do It's the old man's beautiful car. So I take the wrench, and I figure it doesn't really matter if there's three bolts on that are really tight. The fourth one won't matter. Bump, ba dum bump. So I carefully tightened the other three. As tight as I could, and I take a hammer, you know, and I'm pushing them over. I put the hood back down on the car, rushed into the garage, put the tools back by the pile of tires the old man had there, Walked around the side of the house, into the front of the house, into my bedroom, walking as cool and as quiet as I can walk, picked up my glove, went back through the dining room, and I could see the old man sitting there, you know, and he's, he's got a piece of coffee cake. It's breakfast time for him. You know, 2.30, eating the coffee cake and drinking his ninth pot of coffee. And he's got his fourth lucky strike going full blast. Uh, he's, he's just sitting there just digging Saturday. See, my old lady, she's hanging over the sink with the Brillo pads. And I'm sneaking out the front. Down the steps I go. And five minutes later, I'm playing second base. I'm like, come on, Bruner, laying in here. And I'm playing. All the while, there's this little sick feeling going on inside of me. No matter how much you play and sing and laugh, you know when you're cheating. You know when you're cheating. You know when you've done something rotten, stinking. Oh, if man was never born with a conscience, wouldn't it be a great world? Wouldn't it be a simple thing, life, if you didn't have your conscience? I'm playing ball, having a great time. Well, you know, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Ball game starts to peter out. Guys are drifting away, and it's getting to be around supper time. And I go drifting on back home. Now, it is almost forgotten, but yet it remains. <laughs> if it sounds like a paradox, it's true. And so I'm drifting on back with Flick, and I'm walking along, see? And I come up to the house, and I say, hey, I'll see you guys after supper, you know? And the Flick says, yeah, let's go down to bowling alley. I says, okay, we'll go down to bowling after you. It's down at 71st and, and Dorchester, you know? I said, okay, Flick, I'll see you after supper. I'll be out about 6.30, something like that. We always ate early on Saturday, see, the old man didn't have to go to work. He was always, you know, he always ate all the time on Saturday. He ate all day, so uh, so you didn't have to worry about him coming up for supper, see. So I drift up, I drift up out into the front of the house, see. <laughs> and I, and all the while, you know, I had I, I, almost completely forgotten this fantastic scene. So I walk through the dining room and I go into the kitchen, see. And my mother is hanging over the sink. And I said, hi, Ma. No answer. I said, hi, Ma. Hey, I'm home. How about give me something to eat? Supper time, you know. I want to go down to the bowling alley with Flick. No answer. 
I said, well, what's the matter, Ma? And she finally turns. She said, something's wrong with the car. Because your, your father's really mad. Something happened to the car. I said, what? All the while, a little thing says, oh, my God, it happened. I says, what? She says, I don't know. He's out in the back. And so very, very carefully, I walk out on the back porch, and I'm trying to play it cool. And I see the old man. His face is purple. It's really purple. And he's got stuff all over the driveway. He's got everything out. He's got tools, all kinds of jazzy. And it's, he's really purple. And I, I walk over to him, trying to play it cool. And I said, Dad, Dad uh, what's, what's up? Oh, he says, I don't know. He says, someday I just... He says, you know, sometime I'm just going to step back. And he says, I'm going to just take a can of gasoline and throw it over this damn car and burn it up. Oh, this thing. He says, oh, he said, me and Gertz and Zudok, the whole crowd, we were going out tonight. And look at this. I can't get this damn thing run. It won't even start. And he... Rushes into the front seat again. He got the key in it and it goes. Well, I noticed gasoline is dripping out of the bottom of the car. <laughs> so I said to the old man, I didn't know what to say about it. You know, I said, Hey, Dad, I said, I said, uh, you notice this gas dripping out of the bottom of the car? He says, Where? Where? And he jumps out and he runs. I said, Where? 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 And I says, Well, there. He says, Where's it coming from? I said, I don't know. He said, you get in the car and turn it over and I watch. And he's, you know, he's, he's, he's got this kind of s screaming thing. See, so I go in the car. Now I'm scared. See, now I don't want to, you know, better play real cool. I don't know nothing. See, so I put the key in the car and I turn it. I go, uh, 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 and I see him running around the front. And he's looking underneath the hood. See, and he's looking under the car. He says, stop it, stop it. It's going to blow up. Stop it. I get out of the car and he's standing there looking. And he's tasting the gas. He's smelling it, see. There's gas coming out of it. Where the hell's the gas coming from? Yeah, I don't know, Dad. Because I thought it was a battery or something. I thought it was a, a coil. There's gas coming out. I said, yeah, I see it, Dad. He said, turn it out again. He says, it's coming out of the carburetor. Wait a minute, hold it. And he's got the hood open. He's looking... He's looking, it's coming out of the out of the carburetor. I said, gee, it, it that's funny, Dad. It is. And he's peering at it. He said, what the hell's wrong with it, this thing? This gas is coming out from under the carburetor there. Look at it. I said, sure is, Dad. He says, this, and he grabs a hold of the carburetor. It's loose. He says, the carburetor's loose. What happened? He says, give me that bolt. Give me that, give me that. He's giving them wrenches, quick. He said, must have jarred loose. He said, driving them for work. Give me them wrenches. And he takes the wrench. He didn't know I'd done any of this thing. So he takes the wrench, and he starts to tighten it. The one that I had tightened first, and it's going... He stopped, and he looked at it, and he says, what the hell's the matter with this thing? It's stripped. This is stripped. How did this bolt get stripped sitting out here in the backyard? I said, gee, Dan, that's funny. Look. Huh. Look at all that little, those little shavings of metal and stuff down on the ground. It must... Huh. And he looked up. Have you ever seen a look of, of almost total disbelief and... A strange fear and total anger. It, uh, everything was mingled in his face. He says...
Who's been messing with the car? Who stripped the nuts on the carburetor? Just give me that wrench. I'll try another one. And he takes the other one and he tightens it. And then he sees. So one of the nuts is gone. Standing here trying to play it as cool as I could, see? Well, there's something about men. They understand each other, even when one is a kid and one ain't. He turns to me. And he said, What are you doing this afternoon? I got my ball glove. I said, <laughs> Nuts! But gee, Dad, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I didn't. Don't lie to me! How many times have you been told, "Don't lie to me"? Don't lie to me! Well, now you got your choice. Come clean, which is suicide, or play it all away in the hope that he'll get hit by lightning. So I looked him right in the eye. I said, I've been playing ball. And he turns to me and said, Where's Randy? That is my kid brother. My kid brother. I mean, Randy had no more interest in cars than he had in, you know. <laughs> he said, Where's Randy? I said, Well, I think he's, gee, I don't know. I think he's, I think he's over at, uh, Gee, I think he's over at Jack Martin's house. Go get him! I said, yeah, Dad. So I go down the street, which was about three doors down, and I go out in front of Jack Martin's house, and I holler, Randy! Hey, Randy, you better get home. Dad wants you. Well, that's a bad news. When Dad wants you, forget it. My kid brother comes out on the porch, and his eyes as big as saucers. You know, who, me, what? I said, you better hurry home. Dad wants you. And so I sort of hung back. I didn't want to get involved. See, my kid brother goes trotting down the street. He goes up the driveway, and I heard, wah, 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 My kid brother is getting yelled at. My old man is hollering. And I hear my kid brother, you know. Well, do you know that no one ever said what happened to the car? For three days after that, our Oldsmobile sat and passed Winsky's garage to where it was towed while they looked for a whole set of new bolts, reboard the, the whole bit, put new threads in it, cost the old man probably three weeks' pay. He had to get new gaskets. After that, the car got 12 miles to the gallon downhill with the wind behind it, and he'd been getting 15 before. It always missed. You have actually heard what my old man never knew. To the last day of his life, who stole the nuts off of his carburetor on the oils? You heard a true confession tonight, friends. And the fear of total loss the mysterious, strange ways 
that things suddenly materialize and dematerialize is one of the great mysteries of life itself. And you know, no, I better not say it. I better not. But even to this day, every time I see a beautiful set of socket wrenches like in Sears, my hand itches. I want to get a hold of those socket wrenches and start tightening things and loosening things and taking stuff off and cleaning it and working around and losing things and sneaking and keeping quiet. Well, it's 5.45 now. Time to hear about Orphan Annie's adventures and all about Ovaltine, too. And if you haven't tried Ovaltine yet, here's something I want to ask you. Do you get so fidgety and fussy in school that your teacher scolds you for not paying attention? And then when your report card comes, do you get such poor marks that your mother and father worry about it and perhaps scold you too? Well, maybe it's not all your fault. You know, doctors say that some boys and girls don't get along so well in school, no matter how hard they try, because they're kind of nervous and high-strung. And if that's your trouble, perhaps Ovaltine's the thing to help you. Because... Every cupful of Ovaltine not only gives you important minerals and vitamins to help build you up, but it also brings you the special important vitamin you may have to have so you won't be so nervous. Yes, sir, Ovaltine has helped lots of nervous boys and girls to feel better. So ask your mother to let you start on Ovaltine, too. But the main thing is to keep drinking it regularly, remember. It's the person who keeps on trying who usually wins out, you know. And after a while... Just see if you don't begin to get feel better and find school lots easier. And perhaps you'll begin to get higher marks, too. Nobody will scold you then, and your mother and father will be mighty proud of you. You just try Ovaltine. See what a big difference it may make. But now, all you new 1936 members of Annie's Secret Society, attention. Right after tonight's adventure's over, we're going to broadcast another important secret message in Annie's new 1936 secret radio code. So get your pencils ready and be sure to keep listening. And now for our adventure. Well, at the age of eight, I was almost nine, as a matter of fact. I'm laying on my duff one day, and I'm reading this uh, magazine. Well, I didn't actually read a magazine at the age of eight. I was looking at all the stuff, and, you know... And there is, in the back of the magazine, there is an ad. It only cost a dime. Well, now, at that time, my personal fortune, since uh, I had hit it big in several uh, deals that I had been involved in, was well over 27, 28 cents. So I was doing pretty good, you know. And, and it said, for one dime, I could receive a tremendous practical joke, which would prove to be highly amusing to all my friends and shocking to my enemies, of which I had many. I mean, you, know, you especially like to shock your enemies, right? Well, I hadn't thought about this thing for a long time. See, this, I, I, I sent the dime in, and two weeks later it came back, that this trick, and I'll tell you, it was far more effective than I ever thought it could conceivably be. It really worked. It really, really worked. You know, like the guy with the cap snapper on television. It really, really worked. <laughs> and uh, I wonder if any of you have ever, if once you tried this, you discover something evil about yourself. And I suspect that's why that some, you know, some guys are believers, other guys aren't. And if you discover something evil about yourself early in your life, you can never be a believer. It's the evil that creeps 
like uh, tiny mice through the dark closets of your mind. Little scrabbling, sneaky mice with chittering jaws and beady red eyes. <laughs> well, this trick, I, I had disappeared into my mind forever. I did not, I used it to fantastic effect for about three months until one day it was confiscated by Miss Norton, who was uh, the head of the uh, Gestapo in the Warren G. Harding School. And I never saw it again. And you know how you are, you know. Think of all the things that you owned at one time, which you have completely forgotten that you actually owned this thing, and at one time it was very important to you. And yet it's disappeared into the great limbo of forgotten stuff. And imagine, you know, can you imagine yourself now standing on an imaginary landscape? Nothing but sand all around you. Imaginary landscape. A Salvador Dali landscape. Endless horizon. And there you are, standing at the now, right this minute, this day, this minute. See, it's an endless horizon of time. Not geography, but time. And behind you is this trail behind you that extends all the way back to the horizon from whence you have come. And this trail is composed of nothing but all the stuff that you personally owned up to this point. Wouldn't you like to, to walk along that pile of crud and look at all these things that you owned? I mean... Can you imagine walking along and saying, I'll be damned, look. When did I own a rubber dagger? Say, oh, yeah. The rubber dagger, yeah. Crying out loud. What's that thing? What? It's a little, it's a little plastic mouse that you wind up. What did I own then? Oh, yeah, yeah, of course I remember that. It would be a terrible, curiously self-revelatory trip, wouldn't it? Walking back until finally you get all the way back to the days when you were so little you didn't even know that you owned stuff. Like, for example, almost every kid when he's born, some relative gives to the mother of that kid a cup that he eats out of. <laughs> a cup with a little curly handle and it's got your name inscribed on it, you know? <laughs> And, and uh, would you like to see that cup? I mean, your own cup that you had? Can you imagine Can you imagine Nixon's pablum cup? You know, <laughs> there it is, you know. <laughs> or McGovern's or somebody's. Uh, you never think of these official guys as owning at one time in their life a rubber dagger and uh, or a Led Zeppelin or, uh, you know, some great thing like that or a kite uh, shaped like uh, Popeye, uh, you know, with a, with, a <laughs> with a long tail on it. But uh, nevertheless, almost every kid at one point, I mean, when you're born, uh, there's a certain series of things that are given to you as a gift. Now, you're, you know, you're only like two weeks old, so you don't think about this. You don't say, oh, it's always what I wanted, you know. I always wanted a spoon like that that you hook on your feet. Have you seen the spoons that kind of have a curly handle on it that the kid holds out to them? They hook on his finger, you know. And the, oh, it's always what I wanted, you know. And look, there's a there's a bottle. Isn't that great? A nursing bottle. 
in the shape of olive oil. It's a great bottle, you know, olive oil from the <laughs> from the Popeye cartoons. Look, her nose is a rubber nipple. Isn't that wonderful? That's just what I wanted, you know. <laughs> yeah, speaking, of, this is WOR New York, and it's time for you to back away from the nipple and let me take a big suck. Hit the hit the button there, please. Hit. Oh, yes, of course. Brewed by P. Ballantyne Brewing Company of picturesque Cranston, Rhode Island, naturally. Pum, pum, pum. Yeah, it was a good commercial, wasn't it? Exciting. Good. Well, uh, I, I, uh, I'll tell you, I'm, I'm, I, I, sh I don't want to give any kids ideas. There's no way to give a kid an idea in this, in this department, but, uh, I, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be a bad influence here, but, uh, let's face it, let's face it. Let's face it, I am not a good influence. No, no, I admit it. And it's not going to do you any good to write and tell me I'm not a good influence. I've known this from the time I was about eight. In fact, uh, I, practically hardly a day goes by, but what I don't get at least ten letters is, hey, Mr. Shepard, don't you realize that young people listen to you? And you could be such a good influence on them. You could tell them about how they should cut their hair short and they should stop thinking about sex and drugs and they should just read good, wholesome, really readable material. Why don't you suggest that they read tonight The Treasure Island or the Bobsy Twins signed a very disappointed John Gambling listener. Please, Mr. Shepard, Please, or we will take action. I gotta, yeah, I don't know what to say, madam. I, I mean, I, I don't try to be an influence one way or the other. I'm just me, you know. I, there it is. And if, if you want to ape Shepherd, you're in trouble right for the start there, because it's never done me much good here. And the, being a good influence, look where it got Johnny Carson. But uh, nevertheless, <laughs> let's face it, you know, that's that's the way life is. You cannot pick your role in life, madam. You are what you are. And I began at eight. I'll admit that I sent for that fantastic trick. You, what was it? Well, the other day, somebody sent me a magazine. People have a tendency to send me old junk that they're about to throw out, so they wrap it all up and send it to Shepard. You know, I don't know why, but I got I more junk every day in the mail. You know, like used Brillo pads. Wilted kohlrabi stalks, all that kind of stuff. I don't know, you know, just the way it goes. Some of it even blows up right there in the office, you know, just out of spontaneous combustion. Not that it's bombs, it's just rotten. Now, you know, it just blows up with the gases that it produces. But nevertheless, this old magazine, see this, look at this thing, see? It's a magazine. And uh, I, I looked at the thing and I says, my God, yes. That's when I went wrong. Do you want to read the ad that took me down the primrose path? It says, Boys, we have here the latest thing in jokes. Our joke consists of a neat box. And when it is opened in the box, you find a human finger resting on bloody cotton. Tell your mother or your girl that you had your finger cut off, and then show it to them and hear them scream. <laughs> yes, uh, 
We uh, sprang it on our old doctor, and believe me, he felt cheap when the finger moved by a dozen. Yes, every man, woman, or child will immediately want one once you show them this fantastic cut-off finger trick. Ah! I want to tell you, I sent for that trick. <laughs> the cut-off finger trick. Have you ever seen it? Well, it's a box, see? And what you do, you hold it in your hand, see? And, of course, you stick your finger through the hole in the back of the box. It doesn't look like you're holding it. It's just a stick your finger through. And they have this bloody, terrible-looking cotton in it. He said, Ma, look. I, here's what I did, see? Here's the way it happened. See, I'm out, I'm out playing ball all the time, you know, at the age of eight. And, of course, mothers have this thing going. All mothers. But any minute now, the kid's going to get decapitated out there doing whatever it is he does. Uh, you know, riding your bike, uh, roller skating, playing football. You know, so now you be careful. Well, I'm out there playing, you know, playing the usual thing that I'm playing with Schwartz and Flick and Broner, see, and I got this thing. It come in the mail. And I took it out, and it had a brown envelope around it. It was all sealed up. It was from this novelty company. And I took it out, you know, and I opened it up to Schwartz and Flick, and I says, I, I first tried it on Schwartz, and I says, hey, Schwartz, Look what I found back of Dr. Slicker's office. And he said, what, what? I said, come over here, Schwartz. I want to show you this. Now, don't tell anything. You know, don't tell nobody about it, Schwartz. But I was walking back. The, see, we had this we had this pool room, see, and a bowling alley. And above the pool room and the bowling alley, there were these dentist's office and these doctor's offices. Now, we used to go back of these. Do you ever, do you ever go around back of a dentist's office? When you were a kid, and grubble in the stuff that dentists throw out, and doc, you'd be surprised what you find. For example, you can find some fantastic rotten teeth. <laughs> we used to find these great teeth, and we used to collect them. See, well, we always had the we always had the myth. Yeah, I kept them in a Prince Albert can, a whole collection of uh, you know impacted wisdom teeth and stuff like that. It was a great hobby. I had that hobby for a while there, and uh, I. Uh, Oh, I, I, listen, you have no idea how many roots some teeth get. Uh, I, uh, I found one tooth that must have about 15 roots. It looked like a whole bunch of, uh, you know, it looked like a bunch of uh, carrots topped by a rotten top. <laughs> Ooh, uh, did that awful? Well, you know, when you, when you, when you start out your life for collecting, uh, abscessed teeth as a, as a hobby, it's hard to switch to something nice and clean like stamps. Uh, because stamps are kind of inorganic. They don't jump out at you. But the, when you got a bunch of rotten teeth in, in a can, it, it's a singing hobby. But nevertheless, Schwartz and I and Flick, we used to go down once in a while back at of Dr. Slicker's office, and it was this Dr. Abrams that had the uh, the dentist's office, and we grubble them at all the junk, and you find all these little x-ray plates, too, you know? We used to hold them up to the light. Hey, look at this, Schwartz. What do you think that is? Oh, wow. Yeah. Hold it up there. See, we, and, and we, we would find discarded medical magazines and textbooks, and you'd be amazed. I mean, if you think that the, that the, that you get great pornography down here on 42nd Street, you ought to see what you get in some of those medical books. Fantastic. You know, you get pornography with sores. <laughs> oh, it's exciting. And it's in color. See, so we used to grub around back of this, place and I told you you wouldn't like tonight's show. I just I warned you, right? Okay, no hard feelings. You can go down there, they're playing a selection from Sound of Music down on the next station where they're doing this nice uplifting stuff. But uh we're gonna talk about life. So I'm you know, I I walk up to Schwartz. Now he 
He knew that you could find almost anything back of uh, Dr. Abrams' office or Dr. Slicker's office, right? So I walk up to Schwartz, and he's standing on second base, you know, looking dumb. And I walk up to him, hey, Schwartz, hey, Schwartz, don't tell nobody. He says, what, what? I said, Schwartz, look what I found back at Dr. Slicker's office. He said, what? I said, I got it in this box, Schwartz. He said, box, what is it? And I had this box in my hand. It was about, uh, you know, three inches long, a little flat box. And he said, what is it? I says, you ain't going to tell nobody, right? He says, no, 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 I won't. I says, here, Schwartz. And I hid it so, he, you know, you, you couldn't show it to the other guys. You know, I hid it very carefully. We both turned towards the outfield. I says, Schwartz, take a look at this. And I take slowly the top of the box off. And Schwartz says, what is it? He looked right in. And, ah, Schwartz fell over sideways. Shepard had found a sawed-off finger back of Dr. Slicker's office. <laughs> and he had it in the box. Schwartz falls flat on the ground, and he's throwing up. Ah, he's heaving all over the place. And I said, don't tell nobody. And I put the top back on. And I, I pretended like I'm sticking it in my pocket. See, what I did was just stick it in my pocket, and you slip the box off in your pocket. Now the box is in your pocket. I said, come on, Schwartz, let's go back to playing ball. Well, Schwartz is as white as last week's oatmeal. He really looked rotten. <laughs> that was a, and, and, of course, this is the first time I ever used this trick, and I couldn't believe the fantastic success it was. It was far beyond, you know, my greatest... Uh, Dreams of glory. Well, I take take this boxing, and all the time, see, Schwartz is now acting real funny, so we're playing the ball game at the, after the game is over, you know, we're walking around, and the Schwartz says, hey, 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 he says, why don't you show Flick what you got in your pocket? And he's still acting kind of shaky, see, because, you know, you don't see a cut-off finger often, you know, not, not very often, you know, unless you, unless you hang around certain, <laughs> certain bad news areas, but, uh, uh, he says, show, show Flick what you got in the, got, got in that box. Flick says, what? You know, Flick was the on top of it kid. You know, we have, every group of male type kids, there's always one kid that's on top of it. You know, he's, he's the kid that knows what the four letter words mean before you quite know. Yes, I remember, you know, that, 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 I'll never forget that time. You know, we're standing back in the garage and, uh, we got talking, you know, various uh, intellectual discussions about various things that had to do with four-letter words and uh, various sexual proclivities and one thing or another. And uh, Schwartz asked a question about a certain word. And Flick says, you mean you don't know what that means? And Schwartz says, no. Flick says, well, it's uh, hockey. It's what it's about, you know? Well, uh, that was, uh, was the beginning. So you see, Flick is on top of it, see? So Flick is uh, standing there, you know, kind of smart. And he says, what do you got in the box? And Schwartz says, oh, boy, when you see it, Flick, you won't believe it. Flick says, what do you got? So I reached out of my pocket. Of course, as I stick my hand in the pocket, in goes the finger into the little hole in the box. See, I, I adjust. I said, wait a minute, I'll get it out. I have to handle it real careful here. I said, no, look, Flick, don't tell nobody. I found it back at Dr. Slicker's office. I found it back at Dr. Slicker's office. I don't tell nobody. I take the box out. See, and I, 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 got, I shield it with my other hand, see, so that the... So that Josway can't see it and Booner, see? Because, you know, after all, we're the big kids. He says, don't tell nobody I got this because, man, you know, it would be fantastic. All hell would break loose if anybody found it out. He says, what do you got? 
I says, uh, and then Schwartz, of course, says, he's backing away. He doesn't want to look at it, yet he wants to see it again. He says, boy, what did you see? A flick? Oh, wow. It's unbelievable. I says, all right, okay, you flick here. And I carefully take the top off, and Flick leans over. Now, Flick was the only kid among us who smoked. You know, he, he was already in that scene, see, and he had this camel hanging out of his trap. You know, he always carried a camel like that, and I picked the box up like that, and I opened it up carefully. He takes one look at it, and he goes, ah! <laughs> The first time I ever saw Flick stagger back, and he swallowed the camel. You just down, go, oh, 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 where'd you get that? I says, I got it back at Dr. Slicker's office. I wonder whose it is. I said, Gee, I don't know. Probably, you know, he probably cut it off on a bus saw or something, and the doctor just bandaged it up and threw it out. Or maybe they operated on him and they took it off. But uh, they threw it out. I found it in all those uh, x-ray stuff and all in the back there. I said, don't tell anybody. And I stuck the box back in my pocket. And, you know, it was tremendous. I was the, I was really important. I mean, one, one kid's got something that all the other kids are fascinated by. He becomes really important, right? I was really important. And, and we would walk down the streets, so and we're walking down the street, and every, but about every block or so, Flick would say, and he'd see somebody else, like, a, Hey, Jack! Hey, Morton! Morton! Come over here, Morton! And, of course, Jack Morton's across. Hey, Morton! Come over here! He says, You ought to see what Shepard's got! Oh, wow! And Morton comes across the street. He says, Hey, show it to him! I'd say, No, no. No, no, I can't show this. I, I told you, Flick, for crying out loud, don't mention it to anybody. And he says, oh, come on, come on, Morton is... Hey, Morton, you won't tell nobody, right? Oh, you won't believe what he's got. Fantastic. Of course, by that time, Morton is flipping. You know, he has to see it, see. Then I say, all right, Morton, you, you promised you won't tell anybody. And, of course, all the while, Schwartz is walking with us, and he's as white as a ghost. He keeps looking at it, see, but every time he looks at it, he gets sicker again, you know. But he can't stop from looking at it. Have you ever had that experience, you know, where you see this fantastic accident, and, and uh, in spite of the fact that it makes you sick to look at it, you got to keep looking at it? <laughs> Schwartz is white, see? Every time I'd show it, he'd run behind the bushes and heave some more, you know? So so he says, uh, you know, Flick says, hey, Morton, you can't believe it. Now listen, I'll tell you this, Morton, if you tell anybody about this, I'm telling you, I'm going to break your neck. See, Flick was a foot and a half taller than anybody else. He said, I'll break your neck, right? Well, I won't tell anybody. Let me see it. So I carefully reached down into my pocket. You know, but reached down into my pocket. You know, by this time I'm really getting good at it. So I reached down in the pocket, and I I stick the finger in. Then I slowly pull it out. And I says, "All right, Morton." Of course, Schwartz and Flick immediately get. They always want to see it again. See, at the gathering, I says, "No, look, Morton, don't tell anybody. I found this back at Doctor Slicker's office. You know, over the bowling alley." You know where Dr. Abrams, the dentist, is? He said, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I found this back at Dr. Slicker's office. Don't mention it. Okay, okay. And carefully, I opened it up. Just carefully. Well, Morton's eyes popped open like a pair of ping-pong balls, like a trumped-on toad frog. And just for one brief instant, he hung there. It's like his, his tongue is hanging out, and his eyeballs are bugging his... It's one fat face topples back. And Flick says, now, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. It's fantastic. We proceeded down the street. And about every block or so, I would flash it on another kid. The kids are heaving all over the place and yelling and screaming and running around. It was a fantastic success. 
I have never had such a social success since. I mean, I was the unquestioned star of the crowd, and that's a good feeling. Well, something in my gut told me I better, you know, we have instincts. Let's face it, man is not only a creature of intellect, he is also a creature of instincts. Well, we have instincts, and I don't know what my instinct was that made me, when I walked in the kitchen that night, I didn't mention anything. <laughs> I did not whip my finger out, you know. That was all. See, so we're sitting down, uh, we're sitting down having, having supper. And uh, I'm sitting there, and, you know, it's been a great day. It's been a fantastic success this day. And uh, I'm sitting there knocking down the red cabbage, you know, and the meatloaf and the, and the mashed potatoes. My kid brother's sitting over there opposite, you know, and he's, he's whining away. And, uh, yeah, our usual, you know, the usual supper tableau. The, my kid brother is looking, eh, I don't want to eat. You know. He always, I don't want to eat. The old man, now you eat. Now, come on, I'm tired of this. Now, either you're going to eat or you're not going to sit at the table. Now, you eat. <laughs> and he's reading the sport page. My mother's hanging over the sink, and she's getting ready to, to bring out some more mashed potatoes. And You know, you know just a normal uh, family life. But suddenly, the phone rings in the next room. You know, we had the phone in the next room. Well, I didn't think anything of it. My mother goes into the next room, picks up the phone, and I hear this murmuring. You know, and I hear this, she's talking away. He did what? What? Ah! There was a brief scream in the next room, see? And I, I still didn't put it together. You know, innocent, yeah. I thought, well, you know what? And the old man looks, he says, what's the matter? What's the matter? My kid brother, you know, he, he looks up for the first time. He stops whining for about two months, and he looks around. And my mother comes rushing in to the, to the, <laughs> remember, this is something. She comes rushing in. Jesus. That was Mrs. Morton. Then it hit me, way down deep in the gut, Mrs. Morton, Jack Morton's mother. She, that was Mrs. Morton on the telephone. She told me something terrible. And the old man says, what's the matter? What's, what's, what's the trouble? She says, do you have that finger in this house? You know, kids never admit to anything. It's a one finger. Mrs. Morton called and told me that you found a cut-off finger back of Dr. Slicker's office, and you showed it to Jack, and now Jack won't eat, and he's home crying. The finger. The cut-off what? She said, don't you lie to me. Don't you lie to me. Do you have that finger in this house? And my kid brother lit up like a Christmas tree. The idea that his brother had a cut-off finger. <laughs> he says, you guys, can I see it? Can I see it? He says, Howard, can I see it? And the old man puts his paper down. He says, you have a what? What did you say he has? My mother says, Miss, Mrs. Morton just told me that our son, your son, your son was showing to all the kids at school today a cut-off finger. A cut-off finger that he found back of Dr. Slicker's office. 
old man looked at me long. It was great, curious, weird moment. He looked at me and he says, Hey, you got a cut-off finger? He says, Where is it? Can I see it? <laughs> the old man dug it. <laughs> he says, Where is it? I said, Well, gee whiz, I... I... He says, Where is it? What did you do with it? My mother says, You better tell me. I'm going to call Dr. Slicker. Well, I said, Well, wait a minute. And I got up, and I walked through the dining room, and my mother is sort of following me, see, yet she doesn't want to follow me. She says, don't you mean to tell me you hid it in your bedroom, a finger in your bedroom? And I says, yeah, it's wait, I'll bring it out. And, oh, there's fantastic excitement in the house. My kid brother's jumping up and down, yelling, he wants to see it. And the old, the old man, you know, he's, he's, he's torn, you know, between... Between disciplining, after all, a kid brings home a, a cut-off finger, you're supposed to do something about it. <laughs> but on the other hand, I mean, it isn't every day that you see a cut-off finger. So I go under my bed where I kept all my stuff. I had my fielder's mitt. I had, the, you know, a couple of bats and my ice skates and all the jazz. That I, I kept all the stuff packed under the bed. Thing. So I crawl under the bed and I reach back in my ice skates just on the other side of my pile of gloves and bats and old football, and I get the box. I take it out, see, and as I take it out, I stick my finger in the little hole. I bring it out, and I've got this box. I bring it out into the kitchen. And my mother says, you mean to tell me you've got a finger in that box? I say, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I found it. You know, I said, let me see it. My kid brother, wow, wow. I very carefully opened it up in the kitchen, in the presence of the meatloaf, in the presence of the red cabbage and the mashed potatoes. I just carefully opened it up, just like I had done before with Schwartz and Flick and with Jack Morton. I opened it up, and my mother leaned forward. She has her hair up and curlers, you know. She leaned forward, took one look at that. My kid brother's flipping. Well, it was a dramatic moment. And I, 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 I wanted to milk it even further, but it was no way. You know, my mother's rushing into it. She's going to call Dr. Slicker, get him up at home. You know, that he's, he's throwing out the fingers back of his, his, his office, and the kids are fighting him. She's going to call Dr. Slicker. And, and, you know, she says, I'm going to call Dr. Slicker. Oh, this is terrible. You mean he throws his fingers right out back of the, up the office? You mean those feet? There's all kinds of... And, and, and uh, I says, well, uh, and she runs into the next room. You know, she's going to call the doctor. And I says, Ma, Ma. And I take the box off my finger. See, there it is. I just take it off like that. And she looked at it. I says, you mean it was a joke? I said, yeah, it's just a joke. The old man says, that's fantastic. He says, let me borrow it. <laughs> and so that was a great hit in his office the next day. I might point out that uh, he was he was the star of the bowling team for at least a week after that. And uh, he says, that's great. Well, I took this box, and I carefully put it back under my bed. And I cherished that box 
I, I used it once at a very spectacular Valentine party. All the kids sitting around, you know, with little Valentines and stuff, I whipped my finger on them. It was a tremendous success. And uh, for at least a month, you know, I was in the, the heady wave, the tremendous crest of social success. And then, like everything else, it slowly began to die down. Let me tell you this. If you wrote a Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, for about a week people talk about it, and then after that they'd forget. They, they just forget, you know. Well, a couple of weeks went by after my fame had, had deteriorated into nothing, and I'm again reading the same magazine. There was another joke. It says, boys, try this on your mother and your friends and neighbors. This will really excite everybody, and it will be a smash success. Off goes another dime. Two days later, after the mail arrives, I get this thing. It came in a brown, a brown sealed envelope, and I whip it out, and it really worked. Tremendous. And about an hour later, I am out playing with Schwartz and Flick and Bruner, and this time we're playing pass tag, you know, the bit with the ball, football, keep tackling each other, running and banging each other, and I'm carefully working it on my hand, see, and sure enough, I fall heavily. I tackle, I get up, oh, 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 quick, oh my God, oh, 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 and the kids all gathered run, and I'm telling you, they were fainting like they were, they were shot in the head. Shepard's magic hand-piercing nail had done its trick. Have you ever seen that one? It's a fake nail that you put on your hand, and it looks like a nail has gone right through your hand. It goes in the back of your hand and comes right out the other, complete with blood. Have you seen that one, Jerry? It's an incredible success. Fantastic success, and it looked like I had been tackled, you know, and this nail went like, oh, oh, I'm holding my hand, oh, 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 my God, oh, it's all oh, nail, and I ran in the, I just ran into the garage, see, and there they are, they're all, oh, oh, he's got a nail to his head, oh, God, oh, that's terrible, terrible, and it's, oh, I can't stand the pain, and I goes running down the alley, and it leaves him behind, see, fantastic, dramatic exit, I ran down, and the guys are all looking, Shepard's got a nail right to his hand. Well, that night, I whipped it on him again at home. I go down, I carefully go down to the workbench. You see, my old man had a workbench, see. And he's upstairs, he's reading the paper. And uh, I says, I'm going to go down and fix my skates, Ma. She says, okay. She says, I don't make a lot of noise because I'm trying to listen to the radio. So I go downstairs and I take his hammer. He has his workbench. It's got all these planes and hammers and saws on it. And I pound. You know, I go pop, 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 pop. Ah! 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 Oh, my God. Oh, 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 oh. And I run up the bathroom. You know, I run up the basement stairs into the kitchen. Oh, 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 my God. Oh, oh. And I got this nail right through my head. My mother packed. Oh, she just practically fainted. You know, oh, oh, my God. She falls over backwards. And my kid brother runs up. He says, oh, look, he's got a nail to his head. Well, again, it was a fantastic success. And the next day, when I went back out to the ball diamond, I was back playing, and I had a fake bandage on my hand. You know, they pulled the nail out of me. And that was only the beginning of a whole series of spectacular successes that I, that I accomplished in that particular... And then, did I ever tell you about the bloody thumb gag? Have you ever seen that one? Yes, I've for a dime I sent in to this place where you get this 
tremendous bandage that goes on your thumb. And it's just gory. There's blood all over it, see? <laughs> and what does it have? Well, it has a nail stuck right through it. You know, it looks terrible. It looks like you got a nail through your thumb. And uh, there were other various trickies that, uh, that just, just vaulted me in the very highest, the highest echelon of social success of my time. Among my peers, I was a legend. And so you see, madam, it is very difficult for me to become a good, a good influence. I would like to try to be a good influence, but too early in life, I found that it's the bad influence who gets all the good lines in life. The good influence winds up being an insurance man, going his way, smilingly, shaking hands, and he may become, if he's lucky, the second assistant treasurer of his local Rotary Club. But what about the devil? <laughs> he marches on. <laughs> oh, look, look at that. Oh. Wait a minute. Listen, did I tell you about the, the, the one that I sent that looked like you had a dagger sticking out between your shoulder blades? Did you see that one, Jerry? That you hook on your jacket? It looks like somebody stuck a knife into you and the blood is running down. You should have seen the time that I ran into the house with that one sticking out between my shoulder blades. My Aunt Clara fainted and they didn't bring her to for a week and a half. <laughs> oh, wait a minute now. I also had, a, I had an eyeball. It looked like I, my eyeball had fallen out. Have you seen that one? <laughs> yeah, you got a patch in your eye and you carry this bloody eyeball with you. What, is that what I want for Christmas. What I want for Christmas is a Red Rider BB gun with a compass and a stock and a thing which tells time. Wow, that's great. I think that everybody should have a Red Rider BB gun. They're very good for Christmas. I don't think that a football is a very good Christmas present. Okay, that's that's enough. That's enough. Enough of the theme tonight. We don't have that much time, and it's only 45 minutes or so, and it's Christmas Eve. And uh, for the last uh, six or seven years now, we have read this story, and I've gotten a lot of uh, requests for it. And it's uh, kind of a thing we always do on Christmas Eve, and it's a it's a short story that uh, originally appeared in Playboy. It's not really a short story. It was a chapter from my novel, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And uh, the short story, it was not really a short story. As I said, the chapter was appeared in Playboy, and that year won the Humor Award for that year for that particular story. However, this story uh, begins, and uh, the title of the story for those of you who have your tape recorder on, and it will be shortened and edited for use on the air, obviously, because it's a much longer story than I can do on the air, but it's very apropos for Christmas Eve. The story is called Duel in the Snow, or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. <laughs> Now, the opening of the story, the I in the story is not me, by the way. It's a, it's a, it's a universal I, and this particular I is named Ralph Parker, who's a New Yorker. 
and he's sitting in the Horn and Hardart having a cup of coffee, and he begins to uh, to think about the, the curious lure that toy guns have for kids. Kids all over the world are attracted to toy guns, whether or not their parents want them to do it or not. It's just a universal urge. Outside in the spanking December breeze, a Salvation Army Santa Claus listlessly tolled his bell, huddled in a doorway to avoid the direct blast of the wind. I sipped my coffee and remembered another Christmas, in another time, in another place, and a gun. I remember clearly, itchingly, nervously, maddeningly, the first time I laid eyes on it, pictured in a three-color smeared illustration in a full-page back cover ad in Open Road for Boys, a publication which at the time had an iron grip on my aesthetic sensibilities and the dime that I had to scratch up every month to stay with it. It was actually an early playboy. It sold dreams, fantasies, incredible adventures, and a way of life. Its center foldouts consisted of gigantic Kodiak bears charging out of the page at the reader to be gunned down in single hand-to-hand -hand combat by the eleven-year-old killers armed only with hunting knife and fantastic bravery. Its Christmas issue weighed over seven pounds, its page crammed with the effluvia of the good life of male juvenilia, until the senses reeled and avariciousness, the growing desire to own everything, was almost unbearable. Today, there must be millions of ex-subscribers who still can't pass Abercrombie and Fitch without a faint, keening note of desire and the unrequited urge to glom onto all of it, just to have it, to feel it. Early in the fall, the first ad appeared. It was a magnificent thing of balanced copy and pictures, superb artwork, and subtly contrived catchphrases. I was among the very first hooked. I freely admit it. Boys! Boys! At last, you can own an official Red Rider carbine action 200-shot range model air rifle. This in block red and black letters surrounded by a large balloon coming out of Red Rider's own mouth, wearing his enormous 10-gallon Stetson, his jaw squared, staring out at me manfully and speaking directly to me eye to eye. In his hand was the knurled stock of as beautiful, as coolly deadly-looking piece of weaponry as I'd ever laid eyes on. Yes, fellows, Red Rider continued, under the gun. Yes, fellows, this 200-shot carbine action air rifle, just like the one I use in all my range wars, chasing them rustlers and bad guys, can be your own, your very own. It has a special built-in secret compass in the stock for telling the direction if you're lost on the trail, and also an official Red Rider sundial for telling time out in the wild. You just lay your cheek against this stock, sight over my own special design, cloverleaf sight, and you just can't miss. Tell Dad it's great for target shooting. And varmint, and it will make a swell, a swell Christmas gift. Wow. The next issue arrived, and Red Rider was even more insistent, now implying that the supply of Red Rider BB guns was limited, and to order now, and see your dealer gets them in before it's too late. It was the second ad that actually did the trick on me. It was late November, and the Christmas fever was well upon me. I thought about a Red Rider air rifle in all of my waking hours, seven days a week, in school and out. I drew pictures of it in my reader, in my arithmetic book, on my hand in indelible ink, on Helen Weathers' dress in front of me, in crayon. For the first time in my life, 
the initial symptoms of genuine lunacy, of mania, had set in. I imagined innumerable situations calling for the instant and the irrevocable need for a BB gun. Great fantasies where I fended off creeping marauders burrowing through the snow toward the kitchen, where only I and I alone stood between our tiny huddled family and insensate evil. Masked bandits attacked my father to be mowed down by my trusted cloverleaf sighted deadly weapon. I seriously mulled over the possibility of an invasion of raccoons, of which there were several in the county. Acts of selfless chivalry defending Esther Jane Alberry from escaped circus tigers. Time and time again I saw myself a miraculous crack shot, picking off sparrows on the wing to the gasps of admiring girls and envious rivals on Cleveland Street. There was one dream that involved my entire class getting lost on a field trip to the swamps wherein I led the tired, hungry band back to civilization using only my Red Rider compass and sundial. There was no question about it. Not only should I have such a gun, it was an absolute necessity. Early December saw the first of the great blizzards of that year. The wind howling down out of the Canadian wilds a few hundred miles to the north had screamed over frozen Lake Michigan and hit Holman, laying on the town great drifts of snow and long, story-high icicles and sub-zero temperatures where the air cracked and sang. Newspaper or streetcar wires creaked on caked ice, and kids plodded to school through 45-mile-an-hour gales, tilting forward like tiny furred radiator ornaments, moving stiffly over the barren, clattering ground. Preparing to go to school was about like getting ready for extended deep-sea diving, Long johns, corduroy knickers, checkered flannel lumberjack shirt, four sweaters, fleece-lined leatherette sheepskin coat, helmet, goggles, mittens with leatherette gauntlets, and a large star with an Indian cheese face in the middle, three pair of socks, high tops, overshoes, and a sixteen-foot scarf wound spirally from left to right until only the faint glint of two eyes peering out of a mound of moving clothing told you that there was a kid in the neighborhood. There was no question of staying home. It never entered anyone's mind. It was a hardier time, of course. And Miss Bodkin was a hardier teacher than the present breed. Cold was something that was accepted, like air, clouds, and parents, a fact of nature, and as such could not be used in any fraudulent scheme to stay out of school. My mother would simply throw her shoulder against the front door, pushing back the advancing drifts and stone ice, the wind raking the living room rug with an angry fury for an instant, and we would be launched, one after the other, my brother and I, like astronauts, into the unfriendly Arctic space. The door clanged shut behind us, and that was it. It was make school or die. Scattered over the icy wastes around us could be seen other tiny, beferred jots of wind-driven humanity, all painfully toiling towards the Warren G. Harding School. Miles away over the tundra, waddling under the weight of frost-covered clothing like tiny frozen bowling balls with feet, an occasional piteous whimper could be heard faintly, but lost instantly in the sigh of the eternal wind. All of us were bound for geography lessons involving the exports of Peru, reading lessons dealing with fat cats and dogs named Jack, but over it all, like a faint, thin, off-stage chorus was the building excitement. Christmas was on its way. Each day was more exciting than the last because Christmas was one day closer. Lovely, beautiful, glorious Christmas 
around which the entire year revolved, at least the kid year. Off on the far horizon, beyond the railroad yards and the great refinery tanks, lay our own private mountain range, dark and mysterious, cold and uninhabited, outlined against the steel-gray skies of Indiana winter, the steel mills. They lay on the horizon like a mysterious black mountain range. Downtown Holman, Indiana, was prepared for its yearly bacchanalia of peace on earth and goodwill to men. Across Holman Avenue and State Street, the gloomy main thoroughfares drifted with snow that had lain for months and would remain until well into spring. Ice-encrusted, frozen drifts along the curbs were strung strands of green and red Christmas bulbs and banners that snapped and cracked in the gale. From the streetlights hung plastic ivy wreaths surrounding three-dimensional Santa Claus faces. For several years, the windows of Goldblatt's department store had been curtained and dark. Their corner window was traditionally a major high-water mark of the pre-Christmas season. It set the tone, the motif, of their giant Yuletide Jubilee. Kids were brought in from miles around just to see the window. Old codgers would recall vintage years when the window had flowered more fulsomely than in ordinary times, and this was one of those years. The magnificent display was officially unveiled on a crowded Saturday night. It was an instant smash hit. First-nighters packed earmuff to earmuff, their steamy breath clouding up the sparkling plate glass, jostled in rapt admiration before a golden, tinkling panoply of, a me of mechanicized, electronic joy. It was the heyday of the Seven Dwarfs and their virginal den mother, Snow White. Walt Disney's seven cutie pies hammered and sawed, chiseled and painted, while Santa, bouncing Snow White on his mechanical knee, ho-ho-hoed through eight strategically placed loudspeakers, interspersed by choruses of, Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. Grumpy sat at the controls of a miniature eight-wheel Rock Island Road steam engine, and, and Sleepy played a marimba, while in the background, Inexplicably, Mrs. Klaus ceaselessly ironed a red shirt. Sparkling artificial snow drifted down on Shirley Temple dolls. Flexible flyers and tinker toy sets glowed in the golden spotlight. In the foreground, a frontier stockade made of Lincoln logs was manned by a company of kilted lead highlanders who were doubtfully fending off an attack by six U.S. Army medium tanks. It was an incredible display. By the way, history has always been vague in Indiana. A few a few feet away stood an Arthurian cardboard castle with Raggedy Andy sitting on the drawbridge, his feet in the moat through which a Lionel freight train burping real smoke went round and round. Dopey sat in Amos and Andy's pedal-operated fresh air taxi cab beside a stuffed panda holding a lollipop in his paw bearing the heart-tugging legend, Hug Me. From fluffy cotton clouds above, the own quintuplet dolls wearing plaid golf knickers hung from billowing parachutes, having just bailed out of a high-flying balsa wood Foker triplane. All in all, Santa's workshop made Salvador Dali look like Norman Rockwell. It was a good year. I'll be back in about two or three minutes here on WOR New York after we have a few brief breaks for a couple of spots on Christmas Eve. Someday you'll own, someday you'll own, 
Yeah, sooner or later you'll own generals, buddy. So uh, on this Christmas Eve, we'll remind you that you go in snow or we pay to tow. That's guaranteed traction, and that's what you'll get from good old friendly General Tire. They got General's famous glass belt gripper 780 priced at just two for $54. And that's for popular size A7813, tubeless black wall. Very popular. It's way up on the hit parade. So check your yellow pages for the General Tire headquarters nearest you. Let's see. Uh, here's a little quick reminder from Dell Paperbacks. They say that they have a book called In the Onion Field by one Joseph Wambaugh, a real-life suspense bestseller available now as a Dell paperback. And uh, not only that, they have uh, another Dell book that you may find interesting. The greatest bestsellers. Books like Rebecca, Exodus, Hawaii. You don't just read them. You live them. Beulah Land by Lonnie Coleman is that kind of book. A sensational bestseller compared by many to Gone with the Wind. But Beulah Land is so frank it could only be published in our time. Beulah Land, the story of a great plantation in all its outward splendor and secret shame. Beulah Land, a Dell paperback bestseller. People at the Barnes & Noble bookstore would like to remind you that books make wonderful Christmas gifts. Hey, Phyllis, here's a book on sailing for your Uncle Ted. No, sailing was last year. Now he's into homemade wine and antique furniture. Oh, well, do we get him this wine book or one on antiques? Uh, why don't we get him both? How come you're so smart? <laughs> At Barnes & Noble, we've got a whole world of books to choose from, especially books for people who like to do things. For instance, we've got books for people who like to garden, books for cooks, books for backpackers, and just about anything else you can think of. In fact, we've got more books on how to do more things than any other bookstore in the world. And they all make thoughtful, enduring gifts for Christmas or any other occasion. So this year, bring your Christmas list to the Barnes & Noble Bookstore at 5th Avenue and 18th Street in Manhattan. And don't forget to put your own name on the list. After all, don't you deserve a book from Barnes & Noble, too, this Christmas? Disinfectant just about overpowers the evergreen in the patient's lounge. But the tree, hung with paper chains and stars, looks bravely festive anyway. To the children in this hospital, this tree is Christmas. To many, it's the most Christmas they've ever had. There are thousands of kids like this, poor, sick, handicapped, and retarded, in hospitals and institutions throughout the WOR area. Your gift to the WOR Children's Christmas Fund puts presents under the tree. Share Christmas. Send your check or money order to the WOR Children's Christmas Fund, Box 710, Times Square Station, New York 10036. Okay, let's get on with the story. Here. We're, uh, we're reading a uh, chapter out of uh, In God We Trust, All of Us Pay Cash. In fact, it's the first chapter, and uh, the title of this chapter, of this, of this work, uh, which was published, by the way, in 1961 by Doubleday and is available still in paperback, uh, the, the paperback company in this case being Dolphin. 
if you're curious about picking up a copy. It's called In God We Trust. All others pay cash, and it's Dolphin, number C486. And now I go on with the story. <laughs> this is uh, the first chapter. Of course, it's, uh, I must also add quickly, if you're following it, some people follow it, by the way, as I read. Uh, it's been uh, edited for air because it's far too long to read in the short time we have. However, there's the Christmas window in Goldblatt's. This is fiction, by the way, for those of you who are curious. Uh, there are no people of this type really around, but it is a fiction story and originally appeared in Playboy. It was a good year, maybe a great one. Like a swelling Christmas balloon, the excitement mounted until the whole town tossed restlessly in bed and made plans for the big day. Already my own scheme was well underway, my personal dream. Casually, carefully, calculatingly, I had booby-trapped the house with copies of Open Road for Boys, all open to Red Rider's slit-eyed face. My father, a great John Reader, found himself for the first time in his life in alien literary waters. My mother, grabbing for her copy of Screen Romances, found herself cleverly euchred into reading a Red Rider sales pitch. I had stuck a copy of Open Road for Boys inside the cover, showing Clark Gable clasping Loretta Young to his heaving breast. At breakfast, I hinted that there was a rumor of loose bears in the neighborhood. I was ready to deal with them, if I had the proper equipment, of course. At first, my mother and the old man did not rise to the bait, and I began to grow anxious, and, of course, inevitably, overplayed my hand. Christmas was only two weeks away. I couldn't waste time with subtlety or droll innuendo. My brother, occasionally emerging from under the daybed during this critical period, was already well involved in some private little brother persiflage of his own, involving an erector set with motor, capable of constructing drawbridges, Eiffel Towers, Ferris wheels, and operating guillotines. I knew that if he got wind of my scheme, all was lost. He would then begin wheedling and whining for what I wanted, which would result in nobody scoring, since he was obviously too young for deadly weapons. So I cleverly pretended that what I wanted, nothing more, was just a simple, utilitarian, unpretentious Sandy Andy, a highly symbolic educational toy popular at the time, consisting of a kind of funnel under which was mounted a tiny conveyor belt of little scoop-like gondolas. It came with a bag of white sand that was poured into the funnel. The sand tripling out of the bottom into the gondola set the belt in motion. As each gondola was filled, it moved back down the track to be replaced by another, which, when filled, moved down another notch, and endlessly they went, dumping sand out at the bottom of the track and starting up the back loop to be refilled again, on and on, until all the sand was deposited in the red cup at the bottom of the track. The kid then emptied the cup into the funnel and started over again, ceaselessly, senselessly, round and round. How like life itself! It was the perfect toy to teach a kid what it's all about. Through my brain, however, there dashed and danced visions of six guns snapped from the hip and shattering bottles, an annoying, nameless frenzy of impending ecstasy. Well, I had to do something about it. And so one day my mother, leaning over a pot of simmering oatmeal, suddenly asked out of the blue, What would you like for Christmas? Horrified, I heard myself blurt, a Red Rider BB gun. Without pausing or even missing a stroke with her tablespoon, she shot back, Oh, no, you'll shoot out your eyes. 
It was a classic mother BB gun block. I was sunk. That deadly phrase used many times before by hundreds of mothers was not surmountable by any means known to kid them. I had really booted it. Such was my mania, my desire for a Red Rider carbine, that I immediately began to rebuild the dike. <laughs> I was just kidding. Uh, even Del Flick is getting one, you know. <laughs> Flick's getting one. <laughs> that was a lie, of course. I guess, uh, well, uh, what I'd like is a Sandy Andy, I guess. <laughs> I watched the back of her Chinese red chenille bathrobe anxiously, waiting for any sign that my shaft had struck home. They're dangerous. I don't want anybody shooting their eyes out. The boom was lowered, and I was under it. With leaden heart and frozen feet, I waddled to school. At recess time, little banks of kids huddled together for warmth amid the craggy gray snowbanks and the howling gale. The telephone wires overhead whistled like banshees, while the trapeze rings and the swings clanked hollowly as Schwartz and Flick and Bruner and I discussed the most important thing, next to what I'm going to get for Christmas, which was what I'm getting my mother and father for Christmas. We talked in hushed, hoarse whispers to guard against security leaks. Schwartz, his eyes darting like a foreign agent, leaned over and said, I'm getting my father a new flip gun. Sheer creative brilliance, a flip gun. That's for spraying mosquitoes. What a fantastic creative idea. I'm getting my old man a rose that squirts water, said Flick. So we talked back and forth. I wouldn't even discuss what I was going to get. Not a way. And so time went on. And more and more it began to look like I was not going to get my BB gun. And so finally, at the far end of Toyland in Goldblatt's, which was on the third floor, is a Santa Claus. A big Santa Claus, sitting there on his throne, asking kids what they wanted for Christmas. I figured I'd try it. On a snowy throne, Framed with red and white candy canes under a suspended squadron of plastic angels, blowing silver trumpets in a glowing golden grotto, sat the man, the connection, Santa Claus himself. In northern Indiana, Santa Claus is a big man, both spiritually and physically. And the Santa Claus at Goldblatt's was officially recognized among kids as being unquestionably the Santa Claus in person. Eight feet tall, shiny, high, black patent leather boots, a nimbus cloud of snow-white beard, and a real thrumming, belt-creaking stomach. No pillows or stuffing. I mean a real stomach. A long line of nervous, fidgeting, greedy urchins wound in and out of the aisles, shoving, sniffling, and above all waiting, waiting to tell him what they wanted. In those days, it wasn't, it was not easy to disbelieve fully in Santa Claus, because there wasn't much else to believe in. There were many theological arguments over the nature of, the existence of, the affirmation and denial of his, of his existence. However, ten days before zero hour, the air pulsing to the strains of we three kings of Orient are, the store windows garlanded with green and red wreaths and the, and the toy department bristling with sleds, there were few who dared to disbelieve. As each day crept on to the next like some glacier, an arthritic glacier, the atheists among us grew moodier, less and less sure of ourselves, until finally, in each scoffing heart, was the floating, drifting, nagging suspicion. Well, you never can tell. It did not pay to take chances, and so we waited in line for our turn. Behind me, a skinny seven-year-old girl wearing a brown stocking cap and gold-rimmed glasses 
hit her little brother steadily to keep him in line. She had green teeth. He was wearing an aviator's helmet with the goggles pulled down over his eyes. His galoshes were open and his maroon corduroy knickers were damp. Behind them, a fat boy in a huge sheepskin coat stood numbly, his eyes watering in vague fear, his nose red and running. Ahead of my brother and me, a long, uneven procession of stocking caps, mufflers, mittens, and earmuffs inched painfully forward, while in the hazy distance, in his magic glowing cave, Mr. Klaus sat, each in turn on his broad red knee, and whispered to exultant dream after exultant dream. Closer and closer we crept. My mother and father had stashed us in line and disappeared. We were alone. Nothing stood between us and our confessor, our benefactor, our dispenser of BB guns, and 297 other beseechers at the throne. Over the serpentine line roared a great sea of sound, tinkling bells, recorded carols, the hum and clatter of electric trains, and a record that over and over and over and over again played jingle bells over and over and over. We stood in line. And Santa Claus got closer and closer, his great red form twinkling in the golden light. One moment, my brother and I were safely back in the tricycle and Irish mail department, and the next instant, we stood at the, at the foot of Mount Olympus itself. Santa's enormous, gleaming white snowdrift of a throne soared 10 or 15 feet above our heads in a mountain of red and green tinsel carpeted and flashing Christmas tree bulbs and gleaming ornaments. Each kid in turn was proud of a tiny staircase at the side of the mountain on Santa's left. And as he passed, his last customer onto his right and down a red chute, back into oblivion for another year. And over it all, the music was deafening. Jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Jingle bells, jingle all the way. Sung by an echo-chambered chorus that kept going on and on. High above me in the sparkling gloom, I could see my brother's yellow and brown stocking cap. He's up there on Santa's knee. He squatted briefly. I heard a booming ho, 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 and then a high, thin, familiar trailing wail, one that I'd heard billions of times before, as my brother broke into his primal cry of fear. A claw dug into my elbow, and I was launched upward toward the mountaintop. My kid brother had disappeared. I had long before decided to level with Santa, to really lay it on the line. No Sandy Andy, no kid stuff. I was going to ride the range with Red Ryder. Santa Claus was going to have to get the straight poop. And what's your name, little boy? What's your name, little boy? His booming baritone crashed out over the chipmunks that were singing. He reached down and neatly hooked my sheepskin collar, swooping me upward. And there I sat on the biggest knee in creation, looking down and out over the endless expanse of Toyland and down to the tiny figures. What's your name, little boy? What's your name? The record ended briefly, and it started up again. Over and over and over they sang... Uh, uh, my head wouldn't work. I couldn't think. Uh, what? Uh, 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 was all I could say. Uh, uh, that's a fine name, little boy. That's a fine name. Ho, ho, ho. Santa's warm, moist breath poured down over me through some cosmic steam radiator. Santa smoked camels, it smelled, just like my Uncle Charles. Ho, ho, ho. My mind had gone blank. Frantic, I tried to remember what it was I wanted for Christmas. What I wanted. I was blowing it. I couldn't think. My head was gone. 
Santa kept going, ho, 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 what would you like? Wouldn't you like a nice football, young man? Ho, ho. My mind groped, football, football. Who the hell wants a football? All I could say was, yeah, I got a football. My mind slammed into gear already. Santa was sliding me off my knee and towards the red chute. I didn't want a football. And I could see behind me already another white-faced kid was bobbing upwards. I want a Red Rider BB gun with a special Red Rider sight and a compass and a stock and a sundial. I shouted, ho, ho, ho. You'll shoot your eye out, kid. Ho, ho, ho. Merry Christmas. Down the chute I went. Down the chute I went. I've never been struck by a bolt of lightning, but I knew how it must feel. The back of my head was numb. My feet clanked leadenly beneath me. As I returned to earth at the bottom of the chute, another snow-white lady shoved the famous free gift that they were giving out into my mitten. I got my free gift. It was a barely recognizable plastic Kris Kringle stamped with bold red letters. Merry Christmas. Shop at Goldblatt's. Free parking. He spun me back out into Toyland. My kid brother stood under a counter piled high with Raggedy Ann dolls. From nowhere, my mother and father appeared. Did you tell Santa what you wanted? The old man asked. Yeah. Did he ask if you'd been a good boy? No. Ah, don't worry, he knows. <laughs> I'll bet he knows about that basement window you busted. Don't worry, he knows. <laughs> Maybe that was it. My mind reeled with the realization maybe Santa did know how rotten I'd been and that the football was only a threat. It was not only a threat, it was a punishment. There had been for generations on Cleveland Street a theory that if you were not a good boy, quote, you would reap your just desserts under the Christmas tree. Maybe I was good business. Oh, God, no, no baby gun, a damn football. The next few days groaned by. Day after day it went past. And then we were going to have our school party. Everybody was to bring paper reeds, and Crayola Santa Claus were drawn. In the corner of our room, atop a desk decorated with crepe paper rosettes, sat our Christmas grab bag. Every kid in the class had bought a gift for the grab bag. I had bought for Helen Weathers a large, amazingly lifelike, jet-black rubber tarantula. <laughs> I cackled fiendishly as I wrapped it. And even now, its beady green eyes glared from somewhere in the depths of the Christmas grab bag. I knew she'd like it. It would be great. Miss Bodkin, after recess, then said to all the kids, now, I want all of you boys and girls to write a theme. A theme, a rotten theme before Christmas. What is this, a theme before Christmas? I want you to write a theme entitled, What I Want for Christmas. Aha! The clouds lifted. I saw a faint gleam of light at the other end of the black cave of gloom. Ever since my visit to Santa, yes, I could write what I wanted in a theme. I remember to this day. How I wrote it, it's cagey, winged phrases and glorious imagery, quote, What I want for Christmas is a Red Rider BB gun with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. I think everybody should have a Red Rider BB gun. They are very good at Christmas. I don't think a football is a very good Christmas present. I wrote it on blue lined paper from my tablet and handed it in. It had to have good margins. Miss Bodkin was very tough on uneven margins. And I waited. The final days before vacation dawned dank and misty with swirling eddies of ice wind that rattled the porch swing. 
Warren G. Harding School glowed like a jeweled oasis among the sooty snowbanks. Lights blazed from all the windows, and in every room the Christmas party spirit had kids writhing in their seats. The morning winged by, and after lunch Miss Bodkin announced that the rest of the afternoon would be party time. She handed out our graded themes, folded with our names scrawled on the outside. A big red bee in Miss Bodkin's direct hand glowed on my literary effort. I opened it, expecting Miss Bodkin's usual penciled corrections, which ran along the lines of, Watch your margins, or check spelling. But this time, a personal note leaped right out of my theme. It flew around the room and fastened itself leech-like on the back of my neck. You'll shoot your eye out. Merry Christmas. Good God. I sat in my seat, shipping water from every seam. Was there no end to this conspiracy of irrational prejudice against Red Ryder and his peacemaker? Nervously, I pulled out of my desk the door-to-ear back copy of Open Road for Boys, which I'd carried with me everywhere, waking and sleeping for the past few weeks. Red Ryder's handsome orange face with the big balloon coming out of his mouth did not look discouraged or defeated. Red must have been a kid once himself, and they must have told him the same thing when he asked for his first Colt 44 for Christmas. I stuffed my tattered dreams back into my geography book. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? The glee club filed in and sang, Oh, little town of Bethlehem. How still we see thee lie. It was party. Who cared about party? That already been squashed. You'll shoot your eyes out, kid. Even from Miss Bodkin. Mechanically, my jaws crunched on the concrete hard rock candy, and I stared hopelessly out of the window, past cutout Santas and garland red and green chains. It was getting dark. It was all over. It was Christmas Eve the next day. And all day long, we wrapped presence, but it was not Christmas for me, for I knew, I knew it was all over. All over. We wrapped and wrapped and wrapped. Early the next morning, I woke up. It was a gray, grim morning. It was barely light. In fact, it was just after six in the morning. I had no real hope. A football, maybe. Maybe a rubber dagger. Maybe a lead zeppelin wound up and ran around on the floor. Who wants that junk? Who cared about fire trucks, Lincoln logs, erector sets? But who knows? I was the first up. Bright, bright morning. Sun gleaming down. I came tearing down waited for the for the packages and there they were under the tree who knows during the night a great snow had fallen covering the gritty remains of past snowfalls and i was alone my kid brother was still asleep my mother and father were asleep in the bedroom i looked at the packages and there under the tree was a long thin flat package Marked with my name, and it said, From Santa. I ripped it open. My God, it was a baby gun. A Red Ryder baby gun! There was a pack of babies with it. And a rolled up tube of targets at five o'clock in the morning.
I put on my bathrobe. I pulled on my corduroy knickers, my goloshes. And I eased myself out into the cold, feeding the gun in my hand. I had a Red Rider BB gun. The temperature was maybe 20 below zero. I trudged down the steps, barely discernible in the soft fluff. And now I stood in the clean air, ready to consummate my great, long, painful, ecstatic love affair. I had gotten a BB gun. Santa Claus had come through. Brushing the snow off the third step, I propped up a gleaming Red Rider target, the black rings and bullseyes standing out starkly against the snowy whiteness. Above the bullseye, Red Rider watched me, his eyes following my every move. I backed off into the snow a good twenty feet, slammed the stock down onto my left kneecap, holding the barrel with my mittened left hand, flipped the mitten off my right hand, and hooking my fingers in the icy carbine lever, cocked my blue steel buddy for the first time. I heard the BB click into the chamber. The spring inside twanged sharply, and with a clunk she rested, taut, hard, and loaded, in my chapped, bluing hands. For the first time I sighted down over that cold barrel, the heart-shaped Rear sight almost brushing my nose and the blade of the front sight wavering back and forth, up and down, and finally coming to rest sharply, cutting the heart and laying dead on the innermost ring. Red Rider didn't move a muscle, his stetson flaring out above the target as he waited. Slowly I squeezed the frosty trigger back, back, back. For one instant I thought, why, it doesn't work. The BB gun doesn't work. We'll have to send it back. And then... Crack! The gun jerked upward, and for a brief instant, everything stood still. The target twitched, a tiny tick, and then a massive wallop. A gigantic, slashing impact crashed across the left side of my face. My horn-rimmed glasses spun away from my head into the snowbank. For several seconds, I stood stunned, not knowing what had happened. Warm blood trailing down over my cheek and onto the walnut stock of my Red Rider... 200-shot range model BB gun. My God, I was shot in the eye. I lowered the barrel convulsively. The target still stood. Red Rider was unscratched. A ragged, uncontrolled tidal wave of pain throbbing and singing rocked my head. The ricocheting BB had missed my eye by maybe a quarter of an inch, and a long, angry, bloody welt extended from my cheekbone almost to my ear. It was divine retribution. Red Rider had struck again. Another bad guy gunned down. It was me. Frantically, I scrambled for my glasses, and then the most catastrophic blow of all, they were pulverized. My glasses were broken. I put the horn rims over on my nose. The front door creaked open. Just then, my mother looked out of the door and said, Now be careful. Don't shoot. Don't shoot your eye. Now be careful of your new BB gun. She hadn't seen yet. My eye was almost shot out. Oh, my God. And then she saw my broken glasses. She says, how did you break your glasses? I said, an icicle fell off the roof. It bounced off the gun, and it bounced up and hit me. I began to cry, faking it at first. But then the shock and the fear took over. It was the real thing. She says, now, there, you're all right. It's just a little bump. You're lucky you didn't cut your eye. Those icicles can kill people, you know. You're really lucky. Hold this rag on it and don't wake your brother. I had faked it. I had pulled it off. I had pulled it off. I had convinced Mother. 
that the icicle had broken my glasses. But I knew I had shot my eye out. I learned something that day. Maybe they know something. They were right. And there I sat in the horn and hard art and sipped my coffee. Yes. I wondered whether Red Rider was still dispensing retribution and frontier justice of old. Considering the number of kids I see with broken glasses, I suspect he is. Kids, you'll shoot your eye out. And that is the classic story from In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, that we read every winter at the same time, every Christmas Eve. It's entitled Duel in the Snow, or Red Rider Nails the Cleveland Street Kid. My God, there's something they know. Be careful. Have a good Christmas. I hope it worked out well. And watch your drive. Okay, and there you have it. Four stories from the man, Gene Shepard, the voice of a Christmas story. I hope you enjoyed these. hope these kind of brought back some memories of when you were a kid back at Christmas time. Or even just watching this movie. I just watched it again this week with my two younger uh, children. And uh, they enjoyed it. So that's always a good thing. And I believe A Christmas Story was actually the first movie that we um, recorded off of HBO when we first got our VCR for Christmas one year. Santa brought us a VCR for the family. And uh, I believe that was the first movie that was ever recorded off of HBO in my household. And we still have that tape to this day. My mother has kept um, not all of the VHS tapes when I was a kid, but... I'd say quite a few, a, a, a good pile of them. So I'd like to maybe uh, go through those tapes someday and just check out the old commercials. A lot of them were HBO recordings, but uh, there were some TV shows in there. So I'd like to go through and, and look at some of the old commercials, see if I can get some good stuff off of there. So um, hopefully, hopefully, like I said, I'll have another episode out maybe in another week before Christmas. Um, but if not, everybody have a safe and Happy holiday. So until the next OTR playlist, thanks for listening. Thanks for subscribing and downloading. And we'll talk to you later.